All right, everybody, we are officially live. Welcome to another episode of the Break the Rules live stream. I'm your host, Lev Polyakov, at Lev Poe on Twitter, and we are here once again with two BTR giants. We have Ladislav Davidson, a fellow of the Atlanta Council, uh, who has been known for his uh, live streams with uh, Curtis Yarvin, and uh, we're going to be planning one soon, and the great and powerful Dr. Jason Riza Giorgiani, philosopher, writer, scholar, uh, overall, uh, these two guys here, you're not going to get more brilliant than this. And uh, today we're going to be talking about uh, what's going down right now with Israel versus Iran. But before that, uh, I wanted to actually get some plugs in here, because uh, let's start with Jason. You are working right now on an artificial intelligence uh, film project. And then we're going to go to uh, Vlad, who uh, recently wrote a book that's uh, on pre-order right now. So uh, Jason, let us know. And for all the new people, make sure to like, comment, subscribe, uh, super chats, uh, bell, all that good stuff. Jason, take it away. Thanks, Lev. Again, it's always a pleasure to be on your show. Uh, right now, there's some emerging AI tech that uh, within a relatively near time frame can render studio grade film production from a desktop. And uh, it needs some uh, development funding, but I hope to use Psychotron as a test project for this tech uh, and to be able to adapt this novel uh, to film within the relatively near term um, using these uh, emerging apps. So if people want to support that project, there's a GoFundMe that I believe link, uh, I believe uh, Lev has linked in the description to the show. It's so in the description. I also just posted it in the chat right now for all the people to see. And uh, Vlad, what is the project that you are, uh, well, you've written it right now and it's out on pre-order. Uh, so let us know about Jewish-Ukrainian relations and the birth of a political nation. Thank you, Lev. Great to be back on. Uh, you're, you're a gentleman and a, and a scholar and a pal. I have just published my second book, which is a book of essays on the uh, last 10 years of a Jewish-Ukrainian relationship, uh, Nazis, World War II, Poles, Ukrainians, Bandera, Russia, Holdemore, Holocaust, Communists. All the things that you might expect from a book of 25 essays about the history of Jews and Ukrainians, uh, of course, ending with uh, the the, uh, the election of the mighty Monsieur Zelensky to the presidency of, um, of Ukraine, making him uh, at the time the second, but now another three Jewish heads of state. Latvia has one also. And it's, uh, it's, it's a book that I've been working on for a long time. It's a book that is, um, I think, interesting even if you don't care about Jews so much or even if you don't care about uh, Israel. It's a book about the history of the country and the way that Ukrainian politics is intimately intertwined with uh, World War II history, World War II memory, uh, memory of the Holodomor, memory of the Holocaust, all these sorts of interesting things. And of course, there's a long essay in it about the, the meeting of, um, uh, of, of the, the then president-elect and prime minister uh, Netanyahu three years ago, which was, of course, foreshadowing other events that have been happening in the last 24 hours. So 
please do get a copy of my book, The Birth of a Political Nation. It's going to be out uh, at the Frankfurt Book Fair in two days. And I'm going to be in America and the UK and Canada doing a book tour. So coming to a city, uh, city close to you soon enough, the birth of a political nation. Nice. And uh, before we get into the uh, main discussion, uh, also, guys, join my Substack, levslens.com. I'm also posting a link to my latest article, and maybe we're even going to get into this uh, particular Russia-Hamas connection that I wrote about in this discussion. But before that, let's just have a broader view of what's going on. Uh, let's actually start with uh, Jason. So, Jason, I know that you, you know, being somebody of um, Iranian uh, descent, uh, born here in the U.S., but with a lot of ties to Iran, this whole situation has been something very special for you and how you see what's going to be happening geopolitically uh, in the, uh, you know, in the next year. So, Jason, just uh, bring us through exactly what is happening, what you see, and then I would love for uh, Vlad to respond. Well, I think rather than rehash the uh, the news cycle for the past, uh, oh, what's it been now, uh, 11 days or so since October 7th, it would be more constructive for me to give a little bit of a background regarding my involvement with Iran and also to an extent my familiarity with Israel. Um, because I think probably this show might have uh, a somewhat different audience than some of my other appearances on BTR. And also, I'm not sure how familiar uh, Vlad is with my own background. So that would probably be the best. No, I've only read your Wikipedia, good sir, but I but oh, I have spent a lot of time in Iran. My wonderfully accurate and defamatory Wikipedia, yes. So it, it, in that case, it's especially in order that I give a little bit of a background. Go for so it. So very long story short, okay, I... Uh, in a serious way, got involved with the Iranian opposition in 2009. Uh, you remember there were the claims of a fraudulent election there and mass demonstrations after uh, Mahmoud Ahmadinejad was supposedly elected to a second term. It was believed by many that Mir Hossein Mousavi actually won the election. And there was an uprising that uh, a lot of us hoped would create the conditions for a Gorbachev-style collapse of the Islamic Republic under Mir Hossein Mousavi. I voted for Mousavi. It was the second time that I voted in Iranian elections. I had also voted for the re-election of Mohammad Khatami. So at that time, we hoped, not, not that many of us believed the Islamic Republic was really reformable, but we hoped that under these so-called reformists, we could stage a kind of Gorbachev-style collapse of the Islamic Republic without much bloodshed. And we know what happened with that. But the important point there is that during that uprising of 2009, going into early 2010, I acted as a solidarity demonstration organizer, and more importantly, being based in New York, um, you know, I'm a native New Yorker, I acted as a lobbyist uh, lobbying the United Nations Security Council, going to the various embassies and engaging the member states of the UN Security Council on behalf of an organization called Iran Crime Watch. It was a human rights organization, and we were basically asking the uh, UNSC members to place sanctions particularly on the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps and other organs of the regime that were responsible for the repression of uh, demonstrations during that time. Then, you know, we saw how unfortunately that whole attempt at, at uh, soft regime change failed. And we go to uh, 2017 when there was another major uprising against the, the Islamic Republic. 
about six months before that, in mid to late 2016, I had gotten involved with an organization called Iranian Renaissance, uh, actually technically Persian Renaissance Foundation, 501c3. And there was a political wing of this organization, let's just say, okay? And I was involved in a kind of triumvirate, kind of, let's say, secret planning group, think tank of this organization. And we did a lot of high level lobbying and planning work, which ultimately uh, led to a plan for an attempted coup in Iran in late 2017, going to early 2018. And uh, in particular, in that time frame, I was responsible for engaging both with Americans and also, frankly, with Israelis, attempting to coordinate uh, a regime change that would not involve mass violent anarchic revolution, but rather a coup uh, originating in elements from within the regime, particularly elements, elements of the IRGC and the military and certain disaffected uh, factions of the political leadership of Iran. And uh, I don't know if you remember those protests, but they were pretty dramatic. Mosques were even you know, set, set fire to, and um, they went on for something like uh, four or five months. So unfortunately, that attempt also failed. In the course of that attempt, I did engage with four different um, members of uh, the Israeli um, political intelligence apparatus. I mean, quite frankly, they were four different members of the Mossad. And uh, I was attempting to give them assurances that whatever regime would emerge from out of this coup would be a regime that would be in the long-term interests of Israel and would bring forth a kind of Iran that could be a regional partner for Israel. And we can get into the details of that later, why I thought, why we, we believed that they might be alarmed on the face of it at the character of the regime that emerged from out of this coup because of certain kind of Aryan discourses and some of the characters that would be involved. And I wanted to be able to uh, give assurances to the Israelis so that they didn't panic and above all, to prevent a military strike on Iran in the course of this attempted military coup. So uh, that's the history of my involvement, long story short, with cool. the Iranian opposition. Uh, let me just conclude by adding that I've also had some degree of, of insight into Israel because I not only grew up in New York City, I went to the Dalton School and some of my, you know, the school where Jeffrey Epstein taught. And, you know, some of my uh, friends, some of the people that I grew up with were the types who had Yitzhak Rabin and Shimon Perez over to dinner at their homes. Uh, so I was able to put my finger on the pulse of the thinking of the Israeli political establishment from actually a fairly young age and gain some insight into their thinking. So I, I'll leave it at that. And we could, you know, um, unpack some of the details there as, as we proceed in our conversation. Sounds good. Uh, Vlad, do you have any questions right now for uh, Jason uh, from what he uh, said? Anything you want to follow no, up on? Like perfectly uh, a nice uh, liberal in the in the grand in the grand sense of that word, uh, in, a, of a, in, a, in a Catholic sense of that word, in a heterodox sense of that word, a liberal gentleman who wants uh, to get rid of the uh, the the uh, barbarous ayatollahs. Of course, I I, I couldn't. 
I couldn't uh, be more on his side. I've I've also uh, spent a lot of time in Iran. I don't know, like a lot of time. I spent three months there once, two, three months. Is that a lot? Uh, I mean, I would say so. What year was it? <clears throat> 2010. Yes. Oh wow! Wow. <laughs> yes, I was I was a young early yes. part of the year. It was in the early part of the year. How do you know? <laughs> Which agency but, were you working for? What? <laughs> <laughs> what do you mean? Let's, what do you mean? Just, let's just say it's too bad that our paths didn't cross earlier. Who knows what we might have <laughs> What could you possibly mean, good sir? I mean, I, no, I was a young. I was a young guy. I was in my in my mid twenties. I had a. Um, I was at the time a Russian citizen. I was uh, I was born in Central Asia in Uzbekistan, and I had black hair and black eyes. And when I walked around uh, Tehran, they didn't they didn't read me as a Jew, but they they read me as a Turkish gentleman or as a Uzbek or something like that. They didn't they didn't see Jew New York Jew Atlantic Council. They saw a Turkish gentleman. And, uh, I spent some time in uh, it was the summer also 2010 in in Tehran. I never wrote about this. I never spoke about this openly. It's the first time I'm actually openly speaking about my experiences but i uh, uh, i uh, i have tremendous love and respect for persian culture persian literature which i read i i was not so successful in getting my persian up to uh, a level of proficiency it's, it's been 12 years since i've practiced my uh, my um, my farsi is mostly gone um but you know i i I've, i'm deeply interested in uh, iranian politics and i followed closely enough yes one can off of uh, off of uh, English speaking and Russian and French speaking resources, and I, I have um, many many uh, friends in in the political um, in the political world. There, actually, I um, actually stayed with a a a, a, a actress uh, who was a well well known actress. Um, maybe I shouldn't say her name, right? No, you shouldn't say her name. Know, although I can, I can, I can guess several potential people. But yeah, let's leave that for off air. Yeah, we can talk yeah, about that uh, after. I, I, yeah, I, I, I met Ayatollahs and I hung out with this famous actress, uh, friends, girl, girlfriend of a friend, yeah. and I, I did various things. I, I it, was, it was a, it was a remarkable time, and I, uh, um, I have a great uh, affection for Ron. So. I, I I couldn't hate the Ayatollahs more if I was this general. So, yeah. and uh, uh, the, the obvious uh, the, the obvious antecedent, of course, is is to get back to the relationship that the Israelis and and uh, the Iranians had before the 1979 revolution. Hmm. So, yeah, I actually think that there's a potential to far exceed that. You know, for people who aren't aware. Uh, the Pahlavi regime had an extensive uh, economic relationship with Israel. There were uh, certain, um, how can I put it, economic incentives offered to Israel in the course of the Shah brokering peace between Israel and Egypt in the early 1970s, uh, particularly involving the oil sector. And uh, they also engaged in some degree, actually significant degree of military cooperation. But then most importantly, the SAVAK, the Iranian uh, state intelligence apparatus, and the Mossad had an intelligence-sharing relationship that was almost as close as that between the five eyes. So that was a very substantive relationship, but it wasn't a relationship from the grassroots. It was a relationship at that time from the upper classes and from the leadership of the country. 
The interesting thing that's happened now, and you know, after 44 years of an Islamic theocracy in power in Iran, an Islamic theocracy that is sending massive amounts of Iranian taxpayer money to quote unquote Palestine, uh, what's happened is that now you have tremendous grassroots support for Israel in Iran. If you look at the, the uh, demographics of these various Arab countries that are supposedly making peace with Israel right now, all of that's happening entirely at the leadership level. There's very little popular support in those Arab countries for any kind of relationship with Israel, Ooh. let alone an alliance with Israel. For example, in Saudi Arabia, it's something like 20, 2%, 2% of Saudis support a relationship with Israel. At the highest throughout the Arab world, it gets to a little less than 20%. Mm. A quick question. Would you say that the kings in those areas, like the Saudi kings, are afraid of their own people rising against them Absolutely. if they show favoritism towards Israel, especially like right now? Well, yeah, I think they're very nervous. I think they're very nervous. Uh, but at the same time, they want security guarantees from America. And America is, in a lot of cases, brokering these relationships. But my point is this, that... yes. There are various metrics that you can use to gauge what degree of support there might be for Israel among the Iranian people. And I would say right now it's probably it's a conservative estimate to say that 60 percent of the electorate and maybe close to 75 percent of Iranians want a normal relationship with Israel. And more than half of the Iranians probably want an alliance with Israel. And that's I, I, I agree with but I, I, I could not agree with this more. Uh, Iran is very interesting in this way, uh, exactly as the gentleman says. The, the Arab countries, the leadership, the elites of these countries, and by Arab countries, I mean the Sunni bloc, uh, the, the, the KSA, the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, Egypt, Jordan, uh, the, the, the Emirates, the, uh, the UA, uh, UEA, all these countries have a very strong relationship with America and with Israel, a security alliance. One that's become warmer and warmer. But they have to go. We have to do like thirty seconds of going back through uh, what happened after uh, after the um, uh, the Trump era thaw and the, the Abraham Accords. I mean, it's all it's all very important, right? You have this this fall between uh, uh, open fall between uh, American led uh, security alliance, which is Sunni and Israel, against uh, the the Shiite uh, Shiite. Iran, Yemenite axis, right? With with the um, with the proxies of of Iran, Hamas and Hezbollah and the Assad regime serving as as a kind of crescent, right? So the the Americans before Trump and after Trump had been trying to get the uh, the, the Arab world on board with a more open version of uh, of uh, Assad, uh, the, the the civil war in Syria. And uh, the JCPOA in 2015, the so-called Iran deal, uh, kind of restarted a war between the, uh, uh, the, the the Persian Empire and the Arabs, right? Uh, uh, Mr. Georgiani, you wouldn't disagree with that? No, I think that's a perfectly legitimate characterization. The only thing I wanted to add to what you were saying, though, is that it's not just that popular support uh, for normalizing relations with Israel is abysmally low in Sunni countries. It's very much the same in these Shiite Arab countries, too. I mean, Iraq. Absolutely. Yeah, the polling yeah, is much polling, I, I mean, like, these are obviously 
Iranians, we could we could talk about why that is. Iranians and and uh, Israelis never fought a war, right? Our my cousins are not fighting your cousins for a small piece of territory in the Levant, right? They're, not only uh, they never fought a war, there's an incredibly right. deep foundational relationship. The most important historical right. figure in Iran today, most revered, especially by the youth, is Cyrus the Great, and he's right. considered the only non-Jewish Moshiach in the Hebrew Bible. I mean, this is a very deep, right. and also Xerxes and what happened yeah. with Hadassah or Esther during the reign of Xerxes. These things establish a deep foundational relationship right. in terms of the intertwined heritage of the two peoples. Right, and I will I will confirm that the the uh, large swaths of the populations of these uh, of these uh, predominantly Arab countries, from Egypt to Jordan, uh, uh, to the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia to Iraq, they uh, hate Jews. Why this is the case uh, is an interesting question having to do with uh, French intellectual history of the 19th century, uh, with uh, uh, wars, the British, uh, the Sykes-Picot uh, line, with uh, all sorts of things, with uh, generations of wars between uh, Israelis and Arabs, but also because of the really nasty stuff uh, on on the television of uh, of. Arab, Arab majority countries, right? So you do have majorities of populations in Arab countries who don't like Jews at the very least. And you do have, uh, uh, by all polling, including the Pew polling, last time I saw it in Iran was about four or five years ago, but even then it was like 57% of, uh, uh, 57% of, of uh, 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 Iranian citizens did not hold anti-Semitic views, not even anti-Israeli, but anti-Semitic views, which made them the least Jew-hating place in the entire uh, Middle East, not even the Levant, which is fascinating, isn't it? I would say that poll is even significantly off, that it's very hard to get good polling in Iran. And I'd also point to the fact that if you look at the latest round of demonstrations starting a little over a year ago, the demonstrations that started with the murder of... Uh, uh, Mahsa Amini, um, the, these uh, demonstrators are between the ages of 15 and 18 years old, a lot of them, okay? A lot of the people who were, uh, a significant percentage of the hundreds of people who were killed over the eight months ago, those demonstrations were, quote unquote, children. They were under the age of 18. They were teenagers. And I bet you that that generation is predominantly pro-Israel, not just not anti-Semitic. I mean, look, one of their key demonstration slogans was literally, death to Palestine, long live Israel. Uh, this is astonishing when you look at, you know, the demographics. It's, and not, it's not astonishing, good sir, because they, the, not being stupid, being very intelligent, probably, well, not probably, they are intelligent and, and, and bright and, and lucid, in their judgments, they understand very well that that Hamas and Hezbollah are like really unpleasant death cults, uh, and they are uh, political proxies in the military, economic, and social sense of the Ayatollah's regime, whose function is to is to kill people far away, and really is a zero sum game between bread and butter and guns internally for the the Persian people, right? You can either pay for social services, or you could send Russian-made armaments to some unpleasant people wearing black masks somewhere uh, far away, fighting for their own uh, little parochial uh, nationalist struggle, which if I was a, 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 
a middle class person living in Toronto, I'd be I'd be like, what does this have anything to do with me? One, and two, uh, every victory that Hamas or Hezbollah or Assad proxy forces uh, have somewhere else in the Levant probably prolongs this nightmare that I have to live with for another year or so. And that would not be a bad judgment of events. Undoubtedly. But I think that a red line has been crossed on October 7th, where it's gone from, why is my taxpayer money being wasted? And what the fuck do these people even have anything to do with me? To, oh, Lord, look at what kinds of crimes are being committed in my name. Okay. I mean, the the barbarity of what was committed on October 7th that ranks with the you know, massacres and hostage taking of Daesh, of the Islamic State in Iraq and Syria. This is a crime that was committed ultimately in the name of the Iranian people using Iranian taxpayer money, completely organized and authorized by the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps. And so I think the crossing of a red line uh, in terms of the Iranian people and what they should be willing to, to, to want to be responsible for uh, and their conscientious responsibility to stand up and denounce that and help to bring about a fundamental change of conditions. Yeah, I agree, I agree with that. Lev, Lev get, get us to somewhere we don't agree, maybe, or, or something that... Uh... Mm, that's going to be very, very hard. Like, uh, I think you guys yeah. are a uh, piece of a pod. You know, you should have met each other back then in Iran, probably. But well, uh, here, let, me, yeah. let me introduce a little dynamic tension here. Mm-hmm. Um, by, by going back to the beginning of the Ukraine conflict uh, and, and giving you a little bit of a genealogy of my shifting view on this situation. Because, you know, when I had dinner with Lev in New York, I think one of the points of contention between us was our respective views on Russia versus Ukraine and, you know, the significance of the, the strategic situation in Eastern Europe. And my position has been, well, had been for years, Um, and I wrote about this in my book, World State of Emergency, that we ought not to have alienated Russia and that aggressive NATO expansion in Eastern Europe was responsible for catalyzing this uh, really regressive Russian turn toward orthodoxy and this basically adoption of a quasi-Mongol discourse of, you know, like Eurasian Eastern uh, hemispheric politics in Russia. Uh, and, and that, you know, we should really try to reverse that somehow and at least um, secure a functional relationship with Russia, if not solicit them ultimately as an ally. So I saw the Ukraine conflict as destructive to that aim. Uh, and I thought that, you know, it was um, flirting dangerously with the possibility of armed conflict between the United States and Russia. Uh, so, so that had been my view. Okay. Now, did it, change, did it change in the last year or anything? I'm well, curious. I'll tell you. I'll tell you how. Well, oh, I, couldn't, I, I couldn't agree with you. I couldn't agree with you less on this thing. <laughs> yes, I know. I, 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 I want to yeah. introduce some dynamic tension here because I know where you stand. But on I'm that. curious. If, I'm curious how events have, have shaped your have shaped your thinking now. Right. So, look. Obviously, the Islamic Republic of Iran is kind of a client state of Russia. Uh, I would say that it's probably the most important ally Russia has besides China. And, and I really do wonder about how deep the Russian-Chinese relationship is and how, how much it might hold up in the very long term. I think that the, uh, the relationship Russia has with Iran is in some ways 
uh, strategically more significant even for Russia. You look at the number of drones that the Iranians have been providing the Russians with. And, um, yes. you know, he, here is where my thinking started to change. When I looked in particular at the apparent compromise of Israel's internal security on October 7th. Right. When I was involved with the Israelis during my attempts at bringing about a regime change in Iran, particularly when we were attempting to organize this coup, I got a very clear sense of the power of Russian Jews within the Israeli political establishment and the intelligence apparatus. Mm -hmm. And I think that there's some significant evidence pointing toward the fact that what we saw take place in the hours leading up to that attack on October 7th was a compromise of Israel's internal security by basically agents of the Kremlin within Israel. And uh, I think that this was simply a retaliation on the part of Putin for the Israelis deciding to finally back Ukraine and to arm Ukraine significantly with Israeli munitions, which, by the, by the way, has unfortunately caused an ammunition deficit in Israel. So, you know, the Israeli Netanyahu himself even was was dragged kicking and screaming toward over Israeli support for Ukraine. Ultimately, the Israelis decided to uh, to do that. And I, I don't find it a coincidence at all that there are very well placed Russian Jews in the Israeli political military intelligence apparatus. And that, you know, this makes perfect sense as, uh, you know, this compromise of Israel's internal security in order to augment and abet the Hamas-Iran organized attack makes perfect sense as the Kremlin's retaliation against, um, you know, Israeli support for Ukraine. Oh, before, so uh, okay. before we can make it a little bit more of a dynamic discussion. Oh, before uh, Vlad responds to that, it's actually very funny because this is pretty much what I wrote in the uh, Substack article that you guys could actually click on on uh, uh, over over here in this area, loveslands.com. And what I wrote was that. Israel has been full of these uh, Russian uh, expats, you know, Russian oligarchs uh, who are Jewish and who are loyal to Putin. For example, Roman Abramovich, uh, Vyacheslav Moshe Kantor. And, you know, these people have made Israel their home. But the biggest thing for me was how Putin and Netanyahu have been long friends for a very long time. They're always seen embracing each other. There's even posters in Israel showing the two of them together. And so what I think, and I don't know what Vlad thinks about this, but what I think may have also occurred here is uh, Netanyahu was ignoring any signs of this happening because probably he was talking to Putin who was downplaying any significance here, maybe saying, oh, I'm going to take care of it. And I think that relationship the two of them had also had to do with Netanyahu getting fooled. I don't know, uh, Vlad, I'm curious what you think and what Jason thinks. Yeah. It's funny you say this because I'm actually right in the middle of writing about this. I actually, I'm, I'm, I'm taking the time away from writing my essay for Tabla Magazine about this. Uh, in fact, I can... Uh, people will watch this afterwards, and, and I, I can rehash uh, some of my arguments in, uh, in, in from that essay now. So you're both you both have valid points, and you're both off on a few different things. Mm. Um, I would uh, uh, on on the Russian Iranian relationship, uh, the gentleman is absolutely correct. Uh, it has become a very 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 strongly uh, important relationship for Moscow as the Russians are less. And less able to uh, source microchips from other places because of the sanctions. It's harder and harder to get sophisticated material into 
the uh, Russian war machine because of the uh, uh, sanctions sanctions regime harder and harder by weapons. The Russians have gone around, as the Ukrainians have, looking for, for old shells, for for material, for uh, even soldiers. And Iran and Russia are now in a symbiotic, reciprocal, transactional alliance. Uh, not, not a warm one. They compete in the Middle East and they compete for resources. And they're not uh, close friends. But the, the Iranians are a belligerent in this war uh, in Ukraine, which is my other my other homeland. Um, you know, I, I've seen Shahed drones in the front when I've reported from the front. Uh, Shahed drones starting last summer, as as early as last summer, not this summer, where Shahed uh, 26 drones were flying, suicide drones were flying over uh, over my native Odessa. Like they were used for the first time in the Ukrainian front in my uh, in civilian places in my native town of Odessa. I, I remember this very well. The, uh, the 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 Iranians are actually even uh, on Ukrainian sovereign territory in the next Crimea uh, with their controllers. They're not in the Donbas, but they are uh, territory. But they are in Crimea helping uh, with uh, with with the usage of their drones. They've given thousands of these drones. They've opened up a factory for drone production uh, right outside of Moscow. Uh, the the they're begging the Russians for help with their nuclear reactors technical assistance on the nuclear program. The Russians promised to sell them SU-35 um, planes. In fact, they, they went back on, they reneged on that deal uh, for interesting stuff. I don't think anyone uh, uh, has written about publicly. There are people who have speculated on the reasons why, but they've not provided the uh, the uh, Tehran with with uh, uh, planes, which would uh, change the the uh, game in the, in the Middle East against American American fighters, right? Uh, it, it, the provision of Su-30, the um, whichever military, whichever military in uh, in the Middle East would uh, change the um, uh, like the uh, uh, the next generation. Uh, Iran, Iran's uh, air force. Uh, Iran's air force is the weakest link in its defenses. Well, it, with Russian-made Su-35s, even a dozen of them, they would be... Um, exactly my point. I mean, it would change yeah. that. It would remedy the weakest link in Iran's defenses. Correct. They would be They would be able to fight the uh, the uh, uh, the Saudis head-on in dogfights, like literally head-on. So the, the Russians promised that. They, as of now, reneged on that deal. We don't know why. Uh, there's a lot of cooperation back and forth. There's a lot of money laundering. The Iranians, Iranians because of years and years of sanctions know how to launder money very well and russians are just learning uh from their uh, from their Re revolutionary guard lays and officer friends now how to do certain things that they've have had to learn so there's a there is a very intricate very interesting very mutual the iranians and the russians it's so open and so openly understood in ukraine that uh the entire population doesn't like Iran at this point in Ukraine. Uh, I've seen you. You know, you watch videos of international sporting events where a, a Ukraine, where a, a Persian guy will offer his hand to a Ukrainian a Ukrainian gentleman, and a Ukrainian gentleman who is on the medal stand with him uh, pretends he doesn't see him. Right? Uh, I don't. I don't like that kind of thing. But that, that that is a data point for what the what the population of Ukraine thinks about about Iran, which along with Belarus is now a belligerent, an open belligerent against. Uh, against Ukraine, which means that Israel 
and Ukraine are now, uh, you know, de facto both fighting in the same war, right? You, you literally have a crescent from starting from Gaza up to up to Lebanon, Hezbollah across uh, across the uh, Levant into into Syria, up into uh, uh, into the, into the uh, through the, through the Caucasus and uh, around the Black Sea. You literally have a war crescent, right? Some of those fronts are in open warfare. Some of those uh, some of those fronts are uh, are not fighting right now, but they're obviously uh, confrontational. Uh, i.e. Syria and uh, uh, and Hezbollah, but you obviously have the uh, the uh, Ukrainians and the Israelis uh, as de facto on the same side in uh, civilizational alliance uh, fighting. Right? Am I wrong? Good sir. No, no, I, I I agree with all of that. Yeah, but you know the particularly fucked up thing in terms of how Ukrainians view Iranians, rightfully at this point, uh, is that you know Iranians. Right, are actually- understandably. Under, I'm sorry to interrupt. Understandably, not rightfully. Understandably. Yeah, understandably. Uh, the really fucked up thing about that is, you know, Iranians are from Ukraine. Uh, to educate, you know, Iranians who aren't aware of this, the Scythians in particular, first and foremost, the Scythians, and then much later, the Persians and the Medes migrated from Ukraine down the Caucasus into the Iranian plateau. So the homeland of the Iranian people, as the homeland of all of the Indo-Europeans, was in Ukraine. On the other hand, Russia... Really close to saying that the Persians are the real Khazars, man. Well, you know, that's a a whole conversation. (laughs) But uh, look, and then on the other hand, Russia has been a major historical enemy of Iran. Iran, sadly, I have to say, under my family uh, about 150 years ago... Iran yes. lost Caucasus to Russia in the Russo-Persian wars with the Tsars and, and also a large part of Central Asia. I mean, you know this. I don't know whether you're from Samarkand or Bukhara, but, you know, the... My family's from Tashkent, but yeah. Tashkent. The, the Qajar dynasty also lost a large part of Central Asia to the Russians. So the Russians are uh, historically a strategic yeah. enemy of Iran, whereas actually Iranians come from Ukraine, ultimately, ethnographically. So this is a, an interesting topsy turvy it is it is it is a sad situation that the that the uh, Ukrainians are fighting uh, the Russians and the the, the Iranians and are uh, basically in a de facto cold alliance with the mm. with the Americans against the uh, against the Iranians. It, it's it's sad. I I I couldn't wish more that the, the that the Ayatollahs again, but you know that's uh, that's neither here nor there would leave. Uh, back to the topic at hand: uh, Russia, Iran. There are basically five or six powers that could have taken down the the uh, the, the fence. It certainly wasn't it wasn't the local uh, Hamas uh, uh, IT guys who took down that billion dollar fence. By the uh, way, can we, just, can we just interject that the average IQ of Gaza is sixty eight. I I, I mean, look, I, I'm not an like I'm not an IQ guy. I I like I've never I've never taken I've never taken like IQ tests uh, of Gazans. I think. I think that kind of thing is unnecessary. Certainly, uh, bad food and a lack of education will give you a low IQ, right? And yeah, this is well, good luck fixing the problem in Gaza environmentally. But in any case, go yeah. on. Uh, whatever the IQ is there, and again, I'm not I'm not a eugenicist or a racialist or whatever. 
Um, Neither is Giorgiani, uh, by the way. I would say that when it comes to the IQ question that wouldn't determine how a person is, I'd say culture is a real big thing there. But it would be a bad starting point when people's IQs could be of a certain level. And again, for me, it's all flexible. Like if an IQ is something, it could be, you know, it could be stretched further out over time uh, with good education and things so, uh, of that nature. Yeah, with, with education and, and crucially nutrition, yeah. uh, IQs yeah, and, go and, up. and maybe CRISPR. I'm a big advocate of neo-eugenic genetic engineering across the board available to the transhumanism. Let's get back Gazans, to the geopolitics. Yeah. Not the Gazans who took down the fence. I think we can agree. The, yes, the, the Gazans who took down the fence were not the people who took down the fence. The people who took down the fence were by definition, uh, there are five or six powers who have the capacity to take down the Israeli fence. Obviously, it was the Israelis taking down their own fence. It would have been uh, the Americans, clearly not. It could have been the South Koreans who have that capacity, also clearly not. It could have been the Chinese, I don't think so. There, that leaves that leaves two two uh, non-European, non-Israeli forces. The Chinese are not it. It's the Russians or the Iranians. It's obviously, the Russians and the Iranians. Now. Uh, Dollar, all the money in my bank account and all the fingerprints and all the stuff from uh, readouts of American and European intelligence services and the fact that, uh, uh, you know, all, all the reporting says that it was the Iranians, it's probably the Iranians, most likely. I'm not in the intelligence services. I don't have access to how it happened. Uh, they, they certainly learned a lot of the... Um, a lot of the lessons on on how to blow up uh, uh, Israeli Merka tanks, Merka tanks, and uh, uh, automated tower machine guns from uh, the Iranians and or uh, watching videos of of the Russian Ukrainian war, but there's very little evidence now, as of now, that Moscow was behind it. I spent the last week and a half looking into that, calling various people. You know, trying to get various people, various intelligence agencies to leak me things. Uh, it, it's very difficult to prove. Uh, I do believe that the Russians and the and, and probably even the Americans, uh, based on, on uh, uh, leaks from the uh, uh, Center in, Intelligence uh, Committee, knew that something was up. The, uh, the, uh, the leaks in the BBC to the BBC that the um, Egyptians... Said mm -hmm. something to the uh, to the um, to the uh, uh, Israelis. I think it's probably backside covering for whatever some bureaucrat in in uh, uh, Foggy Bottom or the CIA uh, knew. Uh, I don't think they actually knew what it would look like, but probably uh, you know we do have signals collection in Lebanon, which mm -hmm. is extremely good, and we do pay the uh, Egyptians for uh, their really good intelligence uh, collection for a reason. So I, I would bet 80% of whatever it is I have in my pocket that the Egyptians knew a little bit about what was coming. The Lebanese, certainly Hezbollah had liaison officers who were talking uh, on, on Zooms, as has been reported in the Wall Street Journal, to, to uh, Tehran. They have not known operational or tactical uh, stuff, but they would have known that something is up and that there's going to be a ground war and that they have to make preparations, that certain of their uh, projects have to do this or certain uh, in intelligence structures have to do that and that they have to roll up uh, roll up a uh, uh, certain amount of their agents and do this and this and prepare for that. I do believe that lots of people had an inkling that something was up. 
Now, uh, that information may not necessarily have gone all the way up to uh, decision policymakers in any of these countries, in Egypt, in Lebanon, uh, in, uh, uh, in, uh, in, in the U.S., but certainly the, the, the Iranians at, at the intelligence level may have shared their intentions with their uh, friends in uh, Russian intelligence services. Mm. That's not outside of the realm of the possibility. This theory about Russian penetration of Israeli intelligence, I'm not convinced. People like Cantor, 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 by the way, is on all these. Um, you know, Moshe Cantor is it's, that's a very as someone in the in the in the professional Jewish world. I I know what every single Jewish billionaire uh, in the post-Soviet world does. I know for a fact that Mr. Cantor would not be involved in that kind of thing because he is a guy who sits on uh, boards and is in, in, uh, part of the uh, World Jewish Congress and all that. Uh, uh, Ab Abramovich is very useful as a go-between to the Turks and the Russians and the Ukrainians and the Israelis. Uh, he is trusted by Everybody, um, it wouldn't be a guy like that. It wouldn't even be a, a mid-level Russian-speaking uh, diaspora Jew. I, I, I don't think that the uh, Israelis are that penetrated. I just think the Israelis were that distracted with their own internal mm. politics and not. But a quick question: Would you say Please. that ultimately the buck stops at uh, Netanyahu? And Absolutely. whatever intelligence was gathered, he, through his, as you already saw, like cozy relationship with Putin, could have been deflected in a similar way. Not that I'm comparing, although I am kind of comparing Putin to Hitler, but I'm not comparing Netanyahu to uh, Stalin. But it does kind of remind me what I write about here, how uh, Stalin had a lot of trust in Hitler uh, to never invade, you know, with their whole uh, 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 Molotov-Ribbentrop pact until the very end when uh, uh, Operation Barbarossa took place. So would you say there could be well, kind well, of like, na I mean, naivety this is here? This is oh, sorry to interrupt again. This is this is his own fault. Israeli operational failure, Israeli security failure, Israeli tactical failure. I, I'm everyone knows there's going to be a commission inquiry. We'll find out in 10, 20 years when a very important gentleman uh, with very big titles on on a, on a committee, blue ribbon committee, figure out what happened. This was a historical historical accident. Israelis had their backside, uh, their head in their backside with the uh, with the. Um, the, the elections and the politics and uh it was shabbat it was a 50th anniversary of of a war you know they they they, they believed in a static defense line that would protect them that was bad thinking they screwed up right really terrible screw up everyone in the political and security and intelligence leadership with any kind of finger uh, on the button on this has to go uh, 80%, 90% of the Israeli population will say that. But again, uh, that's that's an internal Israeli question. Our issue uh, in terms of discussing the the, uh, the Israeli-Iranian access is what does this mean? What does this mean? Not, let's not... Uh, this is, it, it, much stupider people than, than you, myself, and Mr. Giorgiani can uh, talk about who to blame for this screw up what does it mean in terms of the future well let me, uh, let me just um uh interject vlad that uh where it's relevant is 
and I, I would like to believe that your assessment is accurate. I really would. Um, but where I find a problem with it is that it's it's very hard for me to uh, to believe that there could have been that scale of military intelligence failure in Israel. And I also know from the brief time that I was trying to engage the Israelis that there's a real fissure in Israel between the Russian Jewish bloc and certain other elements of the Israeli establishment. I, you know, I engaged with at least one uh, member of the Mossad who I had reason to suspect was a double agent of the FSB. And also, um, I sent a letter through certain intermediaries to the then Israeli defense minister, Avigdor Lieberman. And I was able to see in the politics surrounding his removal from office by Netanyahu and Netanyahu's uh, supplanting him as defense minister, in addition to his responsibilities as prime minister, how deep the fissure is between that Russian Jewish faction and certain other elements in the Israeli establishment. So I don't think it's impossible that that could have been a, a uh, faction within Israel that acted uh, in alignment with people in the Kremlin in order to uh, ultimately uh, realign Israel with Moscow and bring Israel from out of the American orbit over the longer term. Now, why is that relevant to the whole question of regional conflict in Iran is because if sure. the Russians went to that extent, if now granted Iran, you're right, is among a handful of countries with tremendous cyber warfare capabilities. Iran's cyber warfare is one of its strongest asymmetrical warfare capabilities. Right. However, it's still hard for me to believe uh, that they could bring down the fence and also be responsible for such a large-scale intelligence failure. And if it was the Russians who acted, then it reveals that the Russians potentially could back Iran in a much more significant way if we have a more expanded and protracted struggle involving Hezbollah in Lebanon and Syria, and ultimately involving a direct confrontation between Israel and Iran. I mean, for example, if the Russians were to dig their heels in and continually rearm the Iranians during some conflict with Israel, well, that obviously has tremendous bearing on how such a war might end. Okay. All right. A lot to unpack there. First of all, Dor uh, Lieberman, uh, uh, I, my father knows him very well. I know um, I wouldn't say he's a family friend, but my, uh, my father speaks to him. Um, my father and Avigdor are the same age, and they come out of the same background. They have the same worldview. There are, and my father is not a, I mean, is not a Russian. He's a he's a Jew from Uzbekistan. When we talk about the Russian bloc, we're talking about Jews from fifteen different republics. Lev was born in Moscow. I was born no, no, in Saint Petersburg. Saint Petersburg. No, sorry. Yeah, sorry. You were from uh, yes. Thank you so much. But you're a Russian Jew. I'm. Uh, I had a Russian passport because I just happened to be living in Moscow in uh, uh, I'm a Ukrainian Jew. I'm, I have my fidelities to Ukraine within this conflict. Uh, my wife's Ukrainian. My ancestors are from Ukraine. Um, I, I, I've spent 14 years reporting from Ukraine. Uh, when we, what, uh, I say that uh, in order to explain that there are lots of different kinds of people within block. And when we talk about Russian Jews, or 1.5 million in Israel, like, like you have to break them down into people from Azerbaijan and people from Belarus. Uh, they're all culturally the same in that they're post-Soviet people. My mother uh, has 
uh, my mother and and her girlfriends from Belarus or uh, Baku or uh, Azerbaijan or Georgia are all culturally the same. They're Soviet people who had their childhood in the 60s, 70s and the young adulthood in the 80s. Uh, you know, probably 30 to 40 percent of Russian Jews in Israel are Ukrainian Jews or Ukrainian. And, and a lot of them um, have Ukrainian roots. Russian Jews uh, mostly come from Ukraine a hundred years ago. There were not that many Jews living in the Pale of Settlement, which you will know, if, uh, our dear listener, if you re read my book and buy my book on Amazon.com. Yeah. So there, there that was is thanks to uh, Catherine the Great, right? She was the one who was responsible for keeping all the Jews in the Pale of Settlement. Correct. Yes, there was a uh, yes, and also when the um, when the Russian Empire annexed large swaths of Poland, they got a lot of Jews didn't know what to do with, so they just basically kept them in the Pale of Settlement. They couldn't live in Russia proper. They would live in Ukraine and mm. places like Belarus and uh, in, in Odessa. Which was not, uh, which was the only Russian city, not uh, uh, not in the pale, so outside the pale of settlement where Jews could live. So, there, it, it is true that the post-Soviet Jewish bloc within Israel is is a kind of cohesive psychological cultural thing. They'll all vote for for Avigdor Lieberman's party as opposed to like I don't know. Uh, they they all they all dislike Orthodox Jews. They all broadly don't like Arabs. Uh, uh, I mean, let more than the average Israeli population because they're in competition with uh, 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 the the Arab Israelis, not to be the lowest part of the the lowest level at the uh, uh, socioeconomically. Uh, you know, but, but the former Soviet Union. Uh, I mean, I don't want to sound racist about my own people i mean like you know we're probably more the more right-wing element of the Likud are probably right, right russian and ukrainian born jews such as my mother and father but i say these things uh, to explain to uh, an outsider like mr uh, Giorgiani that it's it's not that cohesive a, a an internal block uh there probably are a lot of people who are working back and forth between russia and the russian intelligence services and the israelis uh, I don't think that what you saw in terms of Avigdor Lieberman getting defenestrated had to do with him being a Russian Jew within Israel. He was a former uh, head of cabinet for Netanyahu. It was very personal between uh, between uh, Netanyahu and uh, Avigdor. Very deeply personal antipathy having to do with uh, uh, you know uh, early career. Uh, butting of heads between Avigdor and uh, uh, and and BB and and his wife, uh, I, I've asked I've asked a former Avigdor Lieberman uh, uh, chief of staff this once, and he basically told me off the record that it, uh, that um, uh, Netanyahu's wife hated Avigdor Lieberman. It's very personal that relationship. I I, I I think you need more background in order to understand how deeply uh, personal that. That is, Sabra Israelis and Russian Jews within the IDF. But though, you know, you could be right. Well, no, I think that's very enlightening. And frankly, I think it's very um, reassuring uh, because I don't want to believe that Russia could have taken such an action 
because it does not bode well in terms of the strategic situation for a uh, direct confrontation between Israel and Iran. And I don't know, maybe we want to head in that direction of discussing the dynamics of that and discussing. Should, like, I think we should actually. I think that's that's actually our value added to uh, to people who know less about the Middle East than you and I do. Uh, this is very much a continuation of a Soviet policy. And Russia is very much keeping a lot of uh, plates in the air with the Iranians, the Arabs, the Israelis and the Americans. Uh, the Russians have commitments to Assad. They're 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 killing Arabs. They're just like mowing down Arabs in Aleppo. Like but more more Arabs have been killed by uh, Russian warplanes over the last 10 years uh, in Syria than have killed by Israeli warplanes over the last 40 years. I'd wager. Right. Uh, you know, you, you also have a, a, a relationship between Israel and uh, and Russia in, in the Golani Heights. Obviously, uh, the deal was that the uh, was between Netanyahu and Putin, obviously, which is going to be in my in my piece and tablet. Uh, uh, Iranians would be the Golani Heights by the Russians. Uh, I mean, the, the Russians sometimes let Hezbollah operatives and Syrian operatives when they don't want them getting killed by the uh, Israeli uh, defense forces and, and the Israeli Air Force, they let them wear Russian uniforms. I don't know if you know this. In no, Syria. I had not heard that. That's, well, it doesn't surprise me all that much. Right. It's quite a tactic. So like, it's like a very complicated thing. Like yeah. Moscow has a relationship with, with, with Israel, which is very important. And the Israelis are not helping us Ukrainians in the war and Ukrainians like are really bitter about this and you have a Jewish president of Ukraine begging Netanyahu for help yeah. and he's not helping and, and, and with Hamas have... Hamas has been invited to over to Russia a representative of Hamas oh. recently met with uh, Lavrov so that's like for the Israelis who are looking at their relationship so uh, was that Hamas or uh, it was. So uh, uh, Russia's foreign minister Sergei Lavrov met with Ishmael Haniyeh a senior pol uh, political leader of Hamas. Uh, I don't know if you guys um, know who Ismail is. Like. Hezbollah. Oh, Hezbollah. Okay, interesting. Okay. So, yeah. yeah. No, yeah. that's absolutely right. Like, the Russians are, are on side with Hezbollah, Hamas, the Israelis, and the Iranians. So, mm. like the, the the Russians are nobody's. Oh, oh wait, actually, you're not you're not correct about that. So, in Wikipedia, it says over here, Ismail Haniyeh is a senior political leader of Hamas and formerly one of the two disputed prime ministers of the Palestinian National Authority. Yeah, yes, he's the, he's the Hamas leader. Yes, 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 the one in Qatar. Yes, Qatar. Mm. So it's not a great sign that the Israelis are seeing these kind of meetings taking place and still side with Russia. So that's why I'm very curious, like per the article that you're writing right now, Vlad, do you see it just being stupidity, like a, a bad loyalty on uh, the part of Netanyahu to keep engaging with this person who's basically stabbing him in the back? Look, I've, I've brought this up with lots of people and... Uh... You know, like Netanyahu really cares about that relationship. He sees it as an asset, like a really personal asset. That relationship was one he cultivated. Um, Putin is well known not to respect almost anybody. I think there are maybe three heads of state he respects anywhere. Uh, the, Kazakh, the Kazakh guy he respected. 
uh, off the top of my head, I can't remember him. And and Netanyahu, he respects. He respects like these strong, strong, literally strong men. Mm. He doesn't really respect many people. What about Trump? And Does he respect Trump? You'd say not at all, not no. at all. But he fears him. He fears him, but he doesn't respect him in the least. Um. But he does. He does absolutely fear him as unpredictable and uh, and uh, uh, you know Putin's very risk averse. I mean, he goes all in when he's when he's gambling, but he's extremely risk averse. It's a really interesting conversation I've been having with all sorts of people for for years. Would would the invasion have happened of Ukraine if Trump was president? Out, I don't think it would have. I mean, I, I believe Trump would sell the Ukrainians out for a quarter, but it wouldn't have happened because he just can't be trusted. Uh, that to be a predictable situation. So, uh, what was I saying? I was I was saying that the the uh, the 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 Netanyahu Putin relationship is based on transaction. It is based on personal uh, uh, affection, which has cooled noticeably over the last eighteen months. And there have been very few calls. And uh, Netanyahu got a call from Putin only yesterday on den day 10 of his war, day 10. And in that call, uh, Putin didn't even bother denouncing the Hamas attack in the readout. I don't know if you saw that. Yeah, I saw that. Uh, I saw to the Iraqi, that. You saw that? You said to the Iraqi prime minister, two-state solution, the Americans yes. aren't doing their job. He gave a little... little. I think you, it, you're cutting yes, out... Go ahead. Can you hear me? Can yes. You hear me? Yes. You're, you're cutting out a bit. Um, you know, I don't know if you about that, but just, you know, as, as a preface, I think one of the other things we need to recognize about Putin, regardless of what your, uh, how can I put it? Um, not to say your feelings about him, but regardless of your ideological position vis-a-vis -vis Russia in the Ukraine conflict is, uh, I think it needs to be recognized that Putin is one of these very rare heads of state who is also the head of the deep state of his country. I mean, this is really yep. exceptional, right? I mean, our presidents for a very long time, for decades, are not read into the highest level of classification of intelligence uh, and military industrial information in our country, okay? Whereas Vladimir Putin, coming from out of the intelligence apparatus of the Soviet Union to begin with, uh, and then basically presiding as the head of state of Russia for two decades is also the head of the Russian deep state. All right. So this is a real geopolitical leader. And he sees the same thing in Benjamin Netanyahu. The same is true of Netanyahu as the prime minister of Israel, the perpetual more or less prime minister of Israel, is that Netanyahu, I, I think, uh, is also a representative of the Israeli deep state and probably has access to the highest level security information in Israel. So these are serious geopolitical players. Uh, but you yeah, know, yes, yes, I, there's, there, I, I wouldn't disagree. I maybe wouldn't use that exact kind of language in yeah. the case of Netanyahu. Uh, but yes, it's true. They open in 16 and 22 years respectively. They they uh, come out of uh, 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 Netanyahu comes from a from a great from a great Zionist family. His father is a great historian, a founder of a state, and uh, Putin, of course, is a is the interface representative of the intelligence services. And Russia, of course, is uh, you, you know we have a joke about you know Prussia was a was a uh, an army with a state, uh, you know, uh, 
uh, in, and Russia, of course, is a is an intelligence service with a state. So in, in in that sense, I wouldn't disagree with that assessment. Yeah, I mean, these are two men who hold secrets that could break the world. By comparison, our presidents are a joke, frankly, and sadly. Uh, so look, but here's where it's really relevant to the subject of our conversation. If there is this longstanding relationship between Netanyahu and Putin, what will happen if Israel engages in a direct military confrontation with Iran? And you know, where I really want to go out on a limb here uh, is that I think, frankly, that's the best course of action for the Israelis to take. And let me couch that first in terms of um, you know, the genealogy of my thinking on this subject, okay? So for those who aren't familiar and, and you know, you know, Vlad, you would be one of them with the positions that I've taken on this quite publicly throughout the years, I have been staunchly against any form of foreign military intervention in Iran, whether it's American military Until intervention. Now? Well, let me, let me finish. So whether it's American <laughs> military intervention, and by the way, I'm still against American military intervention in Iran. I think that any American ground invasion of Iran would be an absolutely ill-conceived disaster. Iran is a country three times the size of France, four and a half times the size of Germany, okay, ringed by three mountain chains and defended you know, by... There's no reason to do it. There's no reason to do it, yes. No, no, one, it's, no, it's no one here is in favor of that. Yeah, it's a, no one should favor that, exactly. So I am still... Hmm very much against any Americans ever dying in Iran for any reason, okay? Uh, and I've consistently been, though, against any form of foreign military intervention as part of regime change in Iran. And the principal reason why I engaged the Israelis in 2017 going into 2018, actually more 2018, was to try to stop, uh, to try to prevent any Israeli bombing of Iran and to give reassurances that there was a path uh, toward change from within Iran itself. All of that having been said, okay. I watched what went on in this latest round of demonstrations uh, beginning a little over a year ago, and the brutality with which this regime uh, not only murdered Iranian teenagers and young people in the streets, but even tortured and raped Iranian young women in, in a movement largely yeah. led by women. And right. I'm also looking at the brutality of these attacks, which I believe were organized by the IRGC and uh, certainly greenlighted by the IRGC and publicly praised by the Iranian leadership. I'm looking at the brutality of these attacks, the hostage taking uh, and, you know, the barbarity of what Hamas unfolded within the borders of Israel. And at this point, frankly, I have to say that I think the shrewdest and most effective solution would be for Israel not to engage in a ground invasion of I, invasion is not the right word, because, frankly, I have to admit to you, I see Gaza and the West Bank as part of Israel. I do believe in a greater Israel, at least as a strategic sphere. And so I don't call the Israeli military going into Gaza an invasion. But I think oh, okay. that the way to handle this situation is not for the Israelis to go into the meat grinder of Gaza and then risk an attack from the north by Hezbollah. I actually think the wisest move for them to make would be to attack Iran first. And if I were to give a piece of unsolicited and unpaid advice to the leadership in Israel, I would say do not hit the nuclear facilities first, even though this is what Netanyahu has been talking about 
uh, I think, for decades at this point. The, the nuclear infrastructure of Iran represents a tremendous capital investment of Iranian time, energy, and resources. It's a national asset of the Iranian people. And more importantly, and I think people in Mossad know this, the gas centrifuge structure of the Iranian atomic energy program has little to nothing to do with Iran's nuclear weapons development. Iran's nuclear weapons development is a separate track program of the kind that many countries use to clandestinely acquire nuclear weapons. I think it involves laser isotope enrichment, and I think it's deeply uh, protected inside of mountains. So it's not going to solve the problem of Iranian nuclear weapons development, and it's going to alienate a large number of pro-Israeli Iranians who see that as the destruction of a national resource. What I would so what do should they hit? What I'll tell you exactly what they should hit. They should hit every base of the IRGC inside Iran, pulverize it, and they should hit every high-level regime target, all the ministries of the Islamic Republic, and certainly a decapitation strike on the office of the Supreme Leader. And then wait and see what the Iranian people yeah. do. Before Vlad responds, I just want to say that I actually bet yeah. in this case that uh, the people who should be listening to this, maybe they are listening to it right now. Just uh, throwing that out there. Okay. So. Or, they, or they will be shortly. Yeah. I hope, well, look, look I, uh, one assumes, one hopes that the Israeli uh, command staff doesn't need our help, that kind of thing, that they, that they have, uh, I oh. mean, look, they, look they, those are the conversations that are taking place now, right now in, in Jerusalem and Tel Aviv. Those are the conversations that are taking place right now in Jerusalem, in the, in the ministries, uh, in, uh, I, I'm not in the, right now, but I imagine those are the conversations. Uh, they, the Israelis have not yet begun a, uh, uh, an invasion of, well, I mean, we're not going to call it invasion, but, you know, an incursion into the uh, into the Gaza Strip. Uh, obviously, the president of America is there now buying time, trying to keep the Israelis from doing it. Uh, frankly, they have to blow something up because uh, 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 you're not going to survive for five minutes as a piñata in the Middle East, in the Levant, uh, if you can be seen to have 1,400 of your citizens uh, killed in an armed invasion, three battalions strong. Uh, something does have to get blown up, and the Hamas does need to be destroyed. The Hamas, of course, is just a proxy force. The real enemy is in Tehran. This was a declaration of war, open war, by Tehran against against uh, Jerusalem and against America, which is why there are two American aircraft carrier groups, to a total of like, 12 ships, ships aircraft uh, support, battleships, nuclear submarines, frigates, standing outside of Lebanon, willing to blow the hell out of the water, uh, anything that moves, and to take over southern Lebanon if necessary, and to blow chunks of Tehran if they need to. Now, uh, again, uh, this could become a worldwide conflagration it's possible right there were there, there would be uh arab states that would have to uh have to uh respond if there was a, a mobile full-on mobilization of a yemenite syrian uh, hezbollah proxies against against other arab countries you could potentially have a blow up of the entire middle east you could have uh, the uh, uh iranians activating uh their 
convert to the Middle East. Wait, 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 wait please the, repeat that. Uh, Iranians activating their what? That part got cut off. The, proxy, the, uh, the Iranians have proxy forces and security forces and intelligence assets all over the Middle East, right? Uh, partly this is the Obama administration releasing all that money to them, uh, which wasn't a nice thing to do. Uh, I, I imagine, I imagine, Mr. Georgiani and uh, Dr. Georgiani and I agree on that also. Yeah, uh, no, right. No doubt, no doubt. Listen, I mean, but this is why I these proxies are exactly why I think that the primary objective of the state of Israel has to be a change of the regime in Iran as quickly as possible. The Israelis have not been able to solve the problem in Gaza or in the West Bank for decades upon decades. Okay, uh, the solution. There's no solution. The solution to the problem in Gaza and the West Bank and the solution to the problem of all these Iranian proxies in Shiite Arab states is to change the regime in Tehran. And mark my words, the next Iranian regime will have a robust counterterrorism force, which will literally send Persians to fight in Gaza against Palestinians and together with uh, the IDF. This will happen. And Israel needs a larger brother like that in the region, which is going to be committed longer term to cleaning up this mess that Iran made in the first place. Let me ask you something. What percentage of the population of Iran, let's say there is regime collapse tomorrow, what percentage of the population wants like a normal, like a return to the monarchy or even like a like a liberal democratic, whatever, even even a kind of kind of slightly liberal Muslim version of that. What percentage of a population uh, right, of Iranians? First of all, I can give you a precise figure because the regime Please. itself gave us a precise figure. During the uh, uprising last year, going into the right. early part of this year, at one point, general strikes started to be organized. And the IRGC went out and did a, a kind of statistical analysis based on what... Uh, percentage of the, the economic sector participated in the general strikes and other metrics. And this got leaked in the newspapers in Iran that the IRGC's own estimate is that 84% of the country was against them, that only 16% of Iranians still supported the Islamic Republic. That's their one out of six. So what the, 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 Iranian, the Iranian security services own internal numbers say that one out of six citizens are on that. They have 16% of the population and 84% of Iranians Islamic Republic. Into a fraction. Convert that into a fraction. One out of six Persians support the regime. Yeah, I would even say it's less than that. But yeah, definitely not one out of seven. Definitely, yeah, maybe one out of seven. Now... But here's the really interesting thing is when you talk about being against the Islamic Republic, that breaks down in all kinds of ways, too. There are people right. who are just sort of moderate Muslims and, you know, they want some kind of a uh, they, they want. I think everyone's agreed on a secular regime. No one wants Islam to play any official role in politics in Iran. I mean, from out of right. those who are opposed to the Islamic Republic. But, you know, right. they want some kind of moderate secular regime. Uh, where people would still be nominally Muslim and Islam would be respected. But actually, that percentage is rather narrow. I would say that that's not more than 20% of the population. And okay. that if you look at the youth in Iran, people uh, age 20 or under, they are rabidly anti-Islamic. They are not just against the Islamic Republic. If you look at the kinds of social media that were, being, uh, that were coming from out of Iran during this last round of protests, 
people are burning Qurans, they're throwing away all kinds of Islamic religious yeah. paraphernalia, yeah. large numbers of people are converting to some form of Zoroastrianism, large numbers of people are part of a black metal subculture that is frankly essentially satanic. And so we, we see a social phenomenon in Iran that's actually- Performative, Performatively satanic. Performatively satanic, right? What was that? It's performatively satanic, right? Not actually satanic. It's just like like. Well, it, well, it depends. Well, it depends what you mean by Satan. If if as I do, you mean Prometheus, or you know his his Iranian origin, Ahura Mazda, then it's positively and deeply satanic. In any okay, case, fine. in any case, the point is that yes. it's not just a question of rejecting the Islamic Republic. There is a cultural right. revolution taking place in Iran, and it's driven right. by the youth. And that cultural revolution is going to determine the future of the Iranian-Israeli relationship. And I think that these two peoples, the Iranians and the Israelis, the Persians in particular, and the Israelis, right. are going to find themselves uh, profoundly isolated and embattled within their region. And they're going okay. to require each other as existential allies in the longer term, which is why Israel has to be very careful not to alienate the people who are its greatest long-term ally. Okay, but so uh, w w using your logic, we don't have to do anything. The the regime will collapse on its own, and the Israelis don't need to strike anything. No, well, they six out of seven. Not at all. Okay. Look, the the yeah. IRGC and the militia that it controls. It has a militia called the Basij. The Basij yeah, are like thugs. Horrible They're people. Thugs. thugs. Yeah, I've seen them. They ride around on motorcycles. I've seen them. Yeah, with chains and clubs and crap. Okay. They, at, at the most, have about 400,000 of these thugs. The IRGC itself is a force of roughly 200,000. This okay. is what Israel needs to decimate. Israel has to decimate the repressive apparatus of the IRGC and its uh, militia, its Basij. And it also, as I said, needs to hit key regime targets. It has to decapitate the Islamic Republic. Then I think it's in the hands of the Iranian people uh, to pour out into the streets without the kind of repression they've faced thus far in the hundreds of thousands and topple what's left of this regime. A quick follow-up question. Who would you guys Please. say is responsible for funding Iran as it is right now? Because obviously they have this force over the people, but you don't really have that force unless there's money for that. So how much of that is just the Iranian economy? How much of that is other foreign influences? And if so, who? I mean, I would say it's mostly the Iranian economy, you know, and, and it's a large part of it is the oil sector. Look, I mean, uh, you know, we can't mince words. Sadly, 80 to 90 percent of Iran's uh, GDP still comes from the oil sector, which, by the way, is the very significant issue in this war. Another one that is worth uh, discussing. And that's the question of ethnic and tribal separatism. So, you know, 90 percent, like something between 80, 90 percent of Iran's GDP is sadly still from oil. And 90% of Iran's oil is in one province, a province called Khuzestan, which the Arabs who live in Iran like to call Al-Ahwaz. And these Arabs are separatists, and they're, they're among a handful of different ethnic groups who have one or another degree of separatism, the, the others being the Kurds, the Azeris, and the Baluch, the Baluch who are near the border of Pakistan. But what sets the Arabs of Khuzestan apart is that they're sitting on top of 90% of Iran's oil resources, okay? So the loss of Khuzestan would be catastrophic for Iran. 
And one of the other issues here in terms of Israel's engagement with Iran is right. that I could well understand, again, not endorse, but I could well understand if the Israelis are looking at Iranians backing proxies within their own borders, in other words, in Gaza, the West Bank, I consider these areas within the borders of Israel. And if the Israelis are looking at the Iranians for decades now, fielding attacks on them from within their own borders, it, you know, it's reasonable to see how the Israelis might want to use ethnic separatism as a strategic tactic against Iran. And they seem it's to be doing it. It's been tried before. Russians with Azeris in the north. It's been tried before. Yes. Well, and the Israelis are building a very close strategic relationship with Azerbaijan in particular. I mean, the right. so-called nation of Azerbaijan, and which used to be, of course, a province of Iran until about 150 years ago. And Are you, uh, are you an Azerbaijan irredentist? At the at the risk of never being flown to Baku on a on a junket ever again, are you in Azerbaijan? <laughs> well, for the long for the longest time during the course of my involvement in the Iranian opposition, I was one of the people right. uh, strongly calling for a greater Iran for the reconstitution of of Iran as it was. You know, um, really only yesterday in the course of a three thousand year history. But I have to say, I have to say, my view on that has also changed, uh, and I think that frankly, and I hate to say these things, I really hate to say these things, but Right. Considering considering how long the Iranian people themselves have tolerated this regime, uh, and right. considering four lost opportunities, 1999, 2009, 2017, and just last year, considering four lost opportunities to topple this regime, at this point, frankly, the Iranian people should consider themselves fortunate if Iran retains its territorial integrity after this war, let alone any kind of expansionism, okay? But and, and that comes back to the point that I was reasonable. that's entirely reasonable. Yeah. Uh, and that comes back to the point I was trying to make, which is that I would understand as a tactic if looking at what you know Iran is doing with with uh, Hamas in particular in Gaza, that the Israelis attempt to do a similar thing in Iranian Kurdistan, Iranian Azerbaijan, and possibly even in Allah in you know Khuzestan, where 90% of Iran's oil is. I strongly suggest to the Israeli leadership, if anyone there is listening who takes any of this to heart, don't do it, because that will alienate a large portion of Iranians. Okay, yeah, I and I think yeah. a stronger Iran is better for Israel in the longer run. An Iran that maintains its territorial integrity and that is an independent military power will be a stronger ally of Israel in the region in the longer run. Mm. I, I mean, I, I, I agree. I, I don't think uh, trying to destroy Iran through civil war, getting the Baluchis or the Azerbaijanis to Azeris in the north. Um, I, I've been, uh, uh, it was Tabriz. I was in Tabriz and I talked to a lot of Azeri, Azeri uh, people uh, who, I mean, even in 2010, they were like, they were so open about the fact that they didn't want to be in Iran. It was hilarious. There's like just a random, random, random guy walking around. They're like, "Yeah, I hate this country." Like, yeah. I mean, I I can't imagine. I can't imagine that I wasn't being followed around. But um, mm. well, I want to uh, step back for a second. So, if uh, this would not be done in the way that you guys are describing, uh, then what is going to happen going back to the situation in Gaza right now with a lot of these people uh, right at the border? 
and Egypt not letting them through, it almost seems like the people who live in Gaza are going to be used as some kind of a human sacrifice so that there is a repeat of the Yom Kippur War, for example, where all these Muslim nations, even if they don't want to, are forced by the anger of their people against Israel to act. And then the question is, what happens then? Does Russia also make use of that opportunity to you know, go further into Ukraine while people are distracted with what's going on there? So it almost seems like a power grab from the side of Russia and then potentially from China, who's looking at all of these things occurring and what we're going to have to contend with if that happens. So anybody who wants to start, I don't know. How about uh, who starts? Yeah, uh, Jason, go for it. Again, I think that that would be a mistaken strategy on Israel's part. I think that Israel, look, I mean, we, we know Israel has sadly very little sympathy across the world. But that having been said, uh, Israel is still, I think, in the position of moral superiority here at this point after this horrendous massacre and this, these hostage takings that took place on October 7th. I think that Israel ought not to compromise further its position of moral superiority by, let's say, massacring the people of Gaza at this juncture, however justified, by the way, that might be, okay? But it's not strategically wise. The strategically wise move to make is to change the regime in Tehran and gain a powerful Persian ally against the Arabs of the region in general. I think that's a much wiser long-term strategy than uh, you know, some massacre in Gaza. What I think that the Israelis should do in Gaza and also in the North is to establish an impenetrable buffer maybe go slightly into Gaza and really establish an impenetrable buffer there and also on the border with Lebanon so that once the IRGC is struck in Iran, it will be harder for Iranian proxy forces to penetrate into Israel. But I think for now, that should be the extent of the operation in those territories and that, again, Israel should focus on gaining within. And, you know, this will happen fast. If you decapitate yep. the Islamic Republic, a flipping of Iran over to the side of Israel will happen faster than the flipping of Italy, uh, you know, from fascism to, to uh, you know, an allied power at the end of the second. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 43, actually. It was uh, 43 or 44 happened. Yeah, I think 44. it was 44. 44, yeah. Thank you. Uh, look, I, I'm not sure if the bylaws of the think tank, of which I am a fellow, allow me to call for, uh, for <laughs> invasions of sovereign countries. <laughs> Uh, even Paris ones. So I'm, I'm just going to I'm going to uh, make my comments descriptive rather than prescriptive in case HR is listening. Right. Uh, just, you know, uh, you know, uh, I, I, I do represent a think tank. Um, you know, I, I'm a Russia, Ukraine, Belarus guy in think tank. And uh, I don't typically, you know, I don't typically make prescriptive statements about what Israel should do re Iran. But I would I would back general the general argument that gaza is a sideshow that even even as they say mowing the lawn as the israelis say you know you don't understand what mowing the lawn means right every every 10 years uh, killing a couple of thousand uh terrorists uh, the latest uh, uh cadre of irreplaceable leaders uh, you know, mowing the lawn is what the Israeli army, what the IDF calls it in Gaza. You know, keeping keeping it bottled up and and every couple of years getting the 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 the, the problems, right? Without actually 
solving the issue one way or another. And there, there are different ways of solving it. Actually, there is no way to solve it. Otherwise, it would have happened by now. But uh, I, I agree with you that that is not the problem. The problem is in Tehran and that the, 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 any kind of long-term security solution would mean a neutralization of the problem, meaning uh, uh, perhaps the Ayatollahs will all one day tomorrow wake up having the same exact dream, but they should all become liberal humanists. Or perhaps, you know, there, there are different ways of right. resolving that issue, right? Pr Pr Prometheus, they, they wake up and uh, well, call Jason and, yeah. They should all be Zoroastrians. I think, I, I mean, like, I, uh, I, I don't, like the, uh, the, the Arabs' victory over the Persians, like, I have no skin in the game being a Ukrainian Jew from Central Asia. I just don't care. But, like, like it seems to me on an aesthetic level that Persians should be should be Zoroastrian. I mean, I don't care. People can believe whatever they want. But I, I, would, you, would you agree that they, like, historically, they should be Zoroastrian, right? You know, I, I had a very long... Well, I always convert to that, right? I had a very long, deep in, engagement with the neo-Zoroastrian movement, and, you know, right. more than you can imagine. And many people have taken me to be a neo-Zoroastrian because, you know, I've written extensively on Zarathustra and the history of even all kinds of obscurantist Zoroastrian sects and, right. uh, you know, and given interviews on it. So people assume that you know, I'm part of this neo-Zoroastrian movement. Actually, what? I think that, I, no, I'm not. I think that, um, I, and I think the majority of Iranian youth are not. I think that Zarathustra, is certainly making a comeback in Iran. Uh, but as a philosopher and a sage uh, and a great Iranian, a, as a cultural figure, I don't see them. You know, this Islamic theocracy over the past 44 years has given religion as such a bad name in Iran. The Iranian sure. youth not. Yeah, absolutely. The Iranian youth. Iran is a very mystical country. OK, that's very true that from out of the, the, the various nations of the world, Iran is one of the nations that has the greatest proclivity toward mysticism and occultism and esotericism and so forth. I but, can believe that. Yeah, but Iran also remember for hundreds of years during the European Middle Ages, Iran was a, a uh, hub of scientific discovery and technological invention. So there's also sure. a very strong undercurrent in this Iranian Renaissance today among the youth of uh, res restoring Iran's scientific and technological capacity or even leadership in the world. So I don't think that you're going to see mass conversions to Zoroastrianism or some kind of a, a new Zoroastrian orthodoxy be established in Iran. I think that the young generation rather are eclectic and they will go toward a form of spirituality. By the way, this is not at all incidental to my developing Prometheism, a form of spirituality that seamlessly fuses science and religion. And sure. it, it won't be any kind of established dogma or church or anything like that. And I think that's the best possible future for uh, Iranian society. I, I think that I think that's that, not knowing as much or having thought about it as deeply as you have. That sounds plausible and correct to me. I think a lot of people don't understand how deeply Iranians and Persians are and how deeply nationalistic they are, even outside the uh, uh, of the regime. I think a lot of the support for regime is a kind of submerged nationalism, right? Uh, yes, I, and I, you know what I have to say, and this gives you some further context, that when Qasem Soleimani yes. was killed, even I yes. protested that move. Even I protested that move because a lot of us did see Qasem Soleimani as an Iranian nationalist, okay? And one interesting thing that came out in the course of this recent 
you know, this recent conflict is when Trump right. made remarks about how Netanyahu screwed him uh, in the last moments leading up to the operation against Hajj Ghassan, uh, where Netanyahu apparently, you know, at the very end, decided to pull Israel out of what was supposed to be a joint operation. Uh, and, you know, a lot of people think Netanyahu, you know, he's, he's, a, he's an oath breaker. He breaks his promises. free. But no, what he Netanyahu is a man who continues to carry out analyses and process data until the last minute before he makes a final decision, which is the prerogative of any shrewd statesman. And I think that, uh, you know, one of the most interesting things um, that is implied by this yes. is that Netanyahu decided it was a mistake to kill Soleimani because Soleimani was the person in place there preventing the kind of barbarity that we just saw take place on October 7th. I think it's inconceivable that Hamas would have attacked the way it attacked had Soleimani still been alive. The man still had, despite his being part of the IRGC and part of a theocratic Muslim establishment, the man still had something like a chivalric code of honor and integrity. And you can see this in his conduct in Iraq and Syria. He would not have authorized the kidnapping of civilians and the mass murder of, uh, you know, yeah. Israelis. Uh, so well, it, yeah, mass, mass of girls uh, uh, didn't seem like his aesthetic. No. no. See, he Soleimani yeah. wanted to always be seen as the paragon of virtue and morality and the defender of the oppressed. So this very much right. would have flown in the face of his discourse. And I think that's why Netanyahu probably wisely made a decision at the last minute that it would be strategically a mistake to take him out of the picture. But that also brings us uh, back to the question of uh, the American election right now and Donald Trump, since, as you guys pointed out, or rather, I think it was um, Jason, you pointed out Trump's unpredictability. So, or, or was it Vlad? I don't remember. But you guys would agree that I, he's... I predictably, I predictably said that he's unpredictable. Yes, yes, yes you said he's unpredictable. So one of the things that I hear from a lot of people who are very concerned about uh, this coming election and concerned about Trump becoming president once again is they don't really see him as being somebody who cares that much about geopolitics outside of what he may assume is in the best interest of the United States. But again, that only goes to how he sees uh, possibly in a limited scope, the United States being affected by what's going on around it, while in reality, I think that what's happening right now very much is going to affect the United States when it comes to what Russia's going to do, when it comes to Iran and Israel. And there's a lot of people who are, you know, big MAGA people who are anti-war, pro-appeasement. They don't want America to do anything with anything at all. And again, like I agree about America not going into Iran, but the question as far as uh, supporting Ukraine, for instance, and making sure that Russia doesn't go, you know, and invades Ukraine fully and then keeps going into Poland and Europe and all that stuff. These are things that are going to affect the world tremendously. And to have somebody in there who is going to say America first, we're going to be isolationist. I think that is very limited uh, uh, thinking. So I don't know what you guys think as far as what do you expect from Trump? Is Trump just... 
uh, saying the things right now that he wants people to hear as far as what he uh, what he wants to do with Putin and Russia, because he seems to be pretty friendly with Putin. Like, you know, all, all the, you know, uh, Trump Russia things aside, he did have yeah, a conversation yeah. with him without an interpreter present and it seems like he likes putin so i don't know it's a weird thing i don't know what, what exactly is going to happen asking a lot of questions yeah you're asking a lot of questions let me let me break it down sure. a few of them obviously uh, obviously he's taken a position where where uh the natcons or whatever you want to call it the the trump wing of the republican party are the enemies of of ukraine within uh the u.s congress and they are against fervor help to the ukrainians obviously Trump has his own personal uh, vendetta against Ukrainians that had to do with the 2016 election, that has to do with the 2020 election, that has to do with uh, uh, impeachment, that has to do with uh, Ukraine Gate being a, a rerun of Russia Gate. There are, are a lot of different reasons why he dislikes the Ukrainians. This was in uh, multiple memoirs of his. Uh, uh, administration aides, all of them who are, in the words of my uh, conservative friends, but hurt. I wouldn't say that myself about the uh, about the uh, uh, this. Um, there's something to that. Uh, I I don't think he's our friend. I I uh, I clearly uh, prefer as a as a Ukraine voter as as you it's like we're, we're at war. I would prefer uh, Biden, who you at least know what's, you know, he's not, he's not going all in and he's slow rolling assistance and, uh, he's very avoidant of escalation and he's made this war, uh, last much longer than necessary with his, uh, unnecessary differing and, and giving weapons very slowly, but at least you know what you're getting with Donald Trump. You have no idea what you're getting and you're, you're in. And 10%, like, you know, obviously is a narcissistic transactional deal maker who will make some sort of deal. So he'll he'll sell the Ukrainians for a price. And uh, we know for a fact that, uh, you know, he talks a good game about, about settlement. On the other hand, his, uh, uh, for all the uh, too foolery, all, all the nonsense of his administration, the actual policy was strongly anti-Moscow. He actually gave the uh, the uh, uh, missiles to the Ukrainians. He actually uh, didn't do anything with the aid until he did when he wanted to use it for his presidential campaign. Uh, the Biden stuff, you know, whatever. Obviously, Trump is, you have to believe what he says, take him seriously. Probably terrible for Ukraine. It's best case scenario that he doesn't that he doesn't get uh, reelected. If he does, it's not a priori a done deal that he will uh, be terrible for Ukraine. I think there's still scope for negotiation, but obviously we don't want him to win to be in that situation. That aside, I didn't think that this uh, situation that we're now a year and a month before the uh, American elections, exactly one year, I didn't think that this kind of world historical geopolitical explosion would take place until closer to the election a lot can happen in 13 months a lot mm, interesting uh, jason your thoughts well i've said this many times before and i'll say it again now um i think that regardless of who wins the 2024 elections 
uh, which has, by the way, become a lot more complicated now that Kennedy uh, has thrown in his, his hat in the ring. Uh, regardless of who wins the elections, I think we're headed into a civil war in this country. I've been saying this for years. Uh, if whether it's this, you know, geriatric, mentally incompetent, incapacitated uh, vegetable who they call our president right now, um, or whether it's Kamala Harris, uh, I think that at least half of this country will not accept that administration if it continues. Uh, on the other hand, obviously, if Trump wins, we're going to have an uprising in the blue states. Um, we're going to have, you know, uh, Portland, Oregon to the nth degree. Um, and so the situation is bad on both sides. You know, either we're going to see red states uh, attempting to secede from a what they're going to most definitely claim was uh, an administration brought into power by another frauded election, or we're going to see massive rioting and social unrest in blue states, much worse than what took place under Nixon. Uh, so I think we're headed into a, a civil war. I, I I, we are yeah. com we're, we're going into a, a uh, I mean, I, I don't think it'll work going into an election where you do have the preponderance of people on both sides who are, uh, let's say, let, let's say it in, in a legalistic way, unsure of the legitimacy of our, of our political institutions, right? Say the least, to say the least. And Kennedy entering the race really complicates things because I can well imagine a scenario where nobody gets, uh, nobody gets uh, a majority of votes. And we could have, let's say, Trump and Kennedy with a majority of individual votes, but the Democrats winning in the Electoral College. And that would be a catastrophe of legitimacy for this country and certainly usher in a civil war. And so the, the grim prognosis that I've had for years is that we may be headed into a scenario where the United States is like China in World War II, where we enter a third world war and we lose the third world war because our country is in a state of civil war during the world war, the way that the Chinese were facing a civil war during the second world war. Yeah, I mean, this is, that, that is quite, that, those apocalyptic, apocalyptic, uh, you know, predictions. I'm not sure it's going, I'm not, I don't know. I think the way that this war uh, between Gaza, uh, Israel, and probably the Iranians will play out in the next weeks, month, will will change things i don't think it's possible to predict anything uh yes I, you know i i i would prefer that that donald trump uh kamala harris and biden not be presidents of the united states but like okay biden's for me the least worst case scenario and uh i'll as a as a ukraine voter i'll i'll vote for whoever is the most pro-ukrainian aid let me uh, let me say this, and I'm and I'm risking yes. I'm risking legal ramifications by saying this, but be that as it may, it wouldn't be the first time that I've done that. Uh, you know, Lev and I we've we've done this series of programs now on the disclosure initiative in the United States and all these questions involving defense contractors and advanced technology. And let, right. let, let me be a little careful how I put this, but if there were ever a time for conscientious people in what they call right. the state of this country, okay? Conscientious people in the military industrial complex of this country who are in possession of types of technology that could be strategically decisive in a third war, world war. If there were ever a time for them to, uh, let's say, guarantee the political future of this country 
it would be just about now. Okay. Uh, I think that they really should look into the abyss that we're on the brink of, and they should take responsibility for the situation. Well, well, there, are, well, there are people like that working on continuity of government. It's not like it's not like America's full of fools. There are a lot of very, I mean, the, the political class are fools. From theoretical planning into execution, because I agree with you that these are all bad options. All the people we see running for office right now are problematic in one way or another. And I don't see any of them being able to avert the catastrophic scenario of a possible convergence of a third world war with a second American civil war. I mean, the, the, look, do you believe that Iran really is two, three months away from having a, uh, a nuclear weapon? Oh, okay. All right. Look, this is another thing I wanted to get into with you. I think Iran yeah. already has nuclear weapons. So just think, about, just think about this, okay? Uh, I started following Benjamin Netanyahu's career in the late 1990s, believe it or not. And um, it was already been, prime minister, man. Yeah, yeah. It's been, I think, every year since then. What's it now? 20 some odd years. Every year we've been told it's by funny. the most CIA, <laughs> Iran is 18 months from developing a bomb. Iran is now only 12 months from developing a bomb. Well, look, if you've studied Iran's atomic capabilities and, and engineering savvy yeah. and so forth, you right. understand that that doesn't make any sense. And by the way, I studied yeah. the history of nuclear weapons development in various countries for a while. It was a hobby of mine at one point. And I looked right. at the South African, South African nuclear program, the you know, Pakistani program, Israel's own program. And I strongly suspect that Iran has had a limited nuclear arsenal for some time maybe somewhere between six to nine weapons. Now, this okay. is a big problem, okay? This is a big problem because, well, it's not just that, you know, obviously if Iran attacks Israel, there's a possibility that these insane mullahs who see themselves as representatives of a Shiite omat rather than of the Iranian nation, that these mullahs will potentially use one or two nukes in Israel, which would, you know, be an existential threat to Israel and a country smaller than New Jersey, right? That's not the only danger that I see. I see uh, a much more um, complex, sinister, more long-term threat here. And that's that if the IRGC sees, and by the way, the nuclear weapons program in Iran is under the direct control of the IRGC. It is not under the control of the Iranian civilian government. They don't even know it exists. So. Uh, this is well known. That's well known. Yeah, and they have plausible deniability when they say we're not developing nuclear weapons because they don't know about the nuclear weapons program. Anyway, so the the danger is this. If, if the IRGC sees itself not as the military of Iran, but as the Islamic right. Revolutionary Guard Corps for the Shiite Muslim world, which, by the way, is uh, its delineated responsibility under the Islamic Republic Constitution, that it's a force protecting and promoting Islam in the world, not defending the Iranian nation, there is a very real possibility that in the right. face of the collapse of the regime, the IRGC will flee Iran. The way that, let's say, you know, certain Nazis fled Germany and formed... Where would they go? Where would they go? Iraq, Lebanon, Syria, Yemen. So the entire Shiite umbrella that they built around themselves are potential safe havens to which they could flee, like the Nazis to Argentina after the Second World War and so forth. And here's the danger, that instead of stupidly using their nuclear weapons in this conflict, they take the handful of nukes that they may have together with them to places like Iraq or Yemen or Syria, 
or worst of all, uh, to Hezbollah in Lebanon. And then at some undetermined point in the future, these weapons are used either against Israel or against America. And there's nobody to retaliate against because nobody knows who the fuck really used these weapons. They were acts of, quote unquote, nuclear terrorism. And there's a regime right. in Iran that's allied with it, with both Israel and America. So Iran is not an appropriate retaliatory target. That, to me, is the greatest nightmare. And I don't know exactly how that can be defended against. I don't either, man. I'm, I'm glad someone in the Mossad and Shin Bet has uh, and, and the uh, intelligence services and security services in in Israel uh, uh, at a higher pay, pay grade than me is thinking about that. Uh, gents, let's wrap this up. Maybe like uh, maybe like closing remarks. Let's or, uh, well before closing remarks, we have a few super chats that I want to make sure, uh, Vlad, if you can stick around just for a wee bit. Uh, they're not a lot of them. Big questions for Vlad first. There's noise coming in from the outside. I'm gonna go close it up and I'll be right back. Okay. All right. Sounds good. Okay, so here we go. And once again, all the people who are listening to this, make sure you smash that subscribe button right now. Click the like uh, icon and hit the bell and all that good stuff. And also for all the people who are on Discord, Break the Rules has a Discord server, and I highly recommend you guys get in there right now. I'm going to post the, uh, the link to it as well. Here is the link right in the chat for all you guys. And also we have patreon.com slash break the rules. If you guys want to support these kind of conversations, become a patron today. It's really going to help uh, a lot of things out. Uh, and if you're a $20 patron and you're in New York City, I'm going to have special events. Maybe I'll invite uh, Vlad to some of those events and we all get to hang out sure. and have a good time. So uh, anyway, yeah, let's go. Uh, let's go to Super Chats over here. So. We have a AFD. Well, no, this one's for Jason. We have Glyop over here. Oh, this one's for you. And this is 10 euros uh, from uh, Glyop. Vladislav, what is your take on the former... Okay, I'm going to wait for Jason for this one because it, it actually concerns him too. And the last one over okay. here is also going to be for Jason. Okay, so right now, Vlad, uh, please tell us about your book before you uh, go as well. Uh, okay, well, so it's a it's a book of essays again about uh, uh, about the last ten years of Ukraine and how, in order to understand the way that the Ukrainian political nation has been built, you have to understand minority rights. And is about the the creation of a post Soviet Ukrainian civic national identity, and and how that is bound up with a kind of just very diffuse liberal conception of who is an insider in the state in the government in the nation it is a book about uh, uh politics it's about a book about liberalism it's a book about history and i think in order to understand how ukraine has developed over the last 10 years and it's been already decades since the since the uh, uh the uh, maidan revolution of dignity you have to understand uh, the way that Jews have been at the center of these questions of uh, the construction of a political nation and how the specter of World War II and World War II uh, meme politics, memory politics, has been at the center of these debates and also of the way that uh, uh, the Russians are obsessed, this last generation of Russians who are the last generation is ruling the, uh, the Russian Empire are, uh, are, are, are still obsessed with World War II history. And so it, it's a book about Eastern Europe. 
uh, Poland and Russia and Ukraine and Jews. So I think I think it's of paramount interest to anybody who wants to understand the region. It's coming out in the Ibedim Verlag Ukrainian Voices series, which is uh, edited by uh, Mr. Andreas Umland, Dr. Andreas Umland. And I think uh, it's a good book. My great friend Bernard-Henri Lévy wrote the preface to it. It's got a BHL preface. What else could you want? Is Bernard-Henri Lévy really a friend of yours? Close friend. Really? I... And you're still ba you're based in sure. Paris, huh? Yeah, I'm, I'm based in Paris. Yeah, I see BHL very often. Uh, very interesting. I, I introduced him to Zelensky. I, I interpreted Zelensky's first conversation of Bernard and Gullivy. So, like, yeah, I, yes. So and yes, and see, friends. this is why you guys should subscribe to Break the Rules. Nowhere on the rest of the internet are you ever going to get these kind of crossovers to ever happen. This is the only place. This is the only place. So subscri subscribe right now, add yeah. a like, the bell. Yeah. Before Vlad, Mr. you go. Giussani is a lovely man. I would not have met him anywhere else. Uh, absolutely. Well, before you go, you know, there yeah, is... don't be so uh, sure about that. I actually find it surprising we didn't run into each other in New York. I mean, how long were you in New York? Uh, you know, like I grew up there, but I left in 2009-10. I have I've lived in Europe for the last 13, 14 years. I lived in New York City from the age of 17, uh, from seven to 24. I was educated well, there. Other than yeah, I mean, we we we. Could have well there, met but like, that range of years. Order. Yeah, well, let's uh, maybe set I something up next order, time. And you can, please, uh, New Yorkers, please come to my book events. We're, we're going to have book events in November, I think, the, November 18th, I think November 11th. In New York. Uh, I'm, 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 I'm having a book, to, book talks in New York next month, so I'll, yeah, I'll, I'll see, see you. Yeah, I'll see you next month then. I'll be back yeah. in New York. I'm in Los Angeles right now, but I will see you in New York next month. Excellent. Oh, oh and Vlad, Vlad, before you go, there is a one super chat here that is related to you and Jason at the same time from Glyop, 10 euros. Please. Uh, Vladislav, what's your take on the former Israeli space security chief's claim about the existence of extraterrestrials and a, quote, galactic federation, unquote? Perhaps you and Jason could uh, delve into this topic. I have no... No comment. <laughs> no statement to make. I have... I, I have no statement that is outside of, yeah. I work in a different aspect. Yeah. I, I could barely figure out what goes on in my own head, uh, let alone yeah. in the universe outside of it. You know, that's uh, a lot uh, going off. Yeah, that, that, that's, uh, that's fair. You know, there's a lot of brilliant people who have very particular interests in a very particular thing, so they would know more about them. I know, Jason, for instance, we talk a lot about UFOs and a lot of these, uh, you know, extra extraterrestrial things, which are not necessarily extraterrestrial, perhaps. But this is, I guess, a conversation for a different time. Can, yeah. Can, yeah, but I can briefly comment on that if sure, you want. Sure, sure. Oh, yeah, if, if Vlad, you please, can still st please. stick around for a bit. I don't want to take up uh, yeah, five, five more minutes. Yeah, please. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, uh, look, I think there was some disinformation in that statement, um, but it's not the only statement that's come from someone who worked at a high level of security and intelligence in Israel. Yuri Geller actually was an operative of the Mossad for many years, and he also had access to serious classified. <laughs> what was that? Oh, yes. Yeah. Yuri Geller, listen, Yuri yeah. Geller ran very serious. Uh, psi and particularly remote viewing operations for the state of Israel for the Mossad for many years. And he also okay. had access to the UFO file in Israel. And he's made various statements as well. Um, but here's the more important point, that 
the change of regime in Iran and the establishment of a security relationship between the future Iranian regime and the state of Israel, I think will be absolutely key to how disclosure unfolds on a planetary scale. That Iran, the future Iran and Israel are key to ensuring that uh, the respect for the individual, personal liberty, progress and so forth are secured as ideals um, and as fundamental and non-negotiable principles in the context of how disclosure unfolds and what geopolitical ramifications it has. So I'll leave it at that. Okay. All right. And uh, the rest of the Super Chats, I think, are going to be primarily for Jason here because I want to make sure that uh, we get all the plugs in and where people could find yourself, Ladislav, and your book once again. Everybody, go into Amazon right now, pre-order it, uh, Jewish-Ukrainian Relations and the Birth of a Political Nation. And uh, anything else before you go, Vlad, and then we'll finish the rest of the Super Chats up with Jason. And, uh, and any final thoughts? No, thank you so much. Uh, thank you so much. I had a, a tremendous, a tremendous good time. I, uh, uh, Mr. Georgiani and I, I seem to be on on the level. Uh, lovely gentleman, uh, very bright, very fun, very well uh, uh, understands this thing. He very uh, access to good information. Very bright, uh, bright head. I'd love to love to have a drink with him in New York. I uh, and you can count on it, Vlad. It was an absolute pleasure talking to you, and I look forward to seeing you next month in New York. Without a doubt, we'll correspond in planet. Yeah, yeah. I'd like to. Uh, you know, uh, I'm a collector of books. If you want to give me, a, I, I'll I'll trade you a new a new copy of my second mm -hmm. book for one of yours. Oh, uh, and also you you have uh, some uh, uh, an Iranian thing that you were showing in the background before before you go. Do you still have it here? Oh, I I was just I, I was I was uh, making a I was spending time before I um I do I do collect art books and I collect art. I have a, I have a uh, I'm an art collector and art book collector. I have a massive collection of art books several thousand uh, I, I've been art collector and I make art and I actually teach art history as a hobby in Parsons Paris I'm on the on the, uh, that's what uh, you teach. I was wondering what it is that you teach so you teach art history huh I teach art I teach art history and uh, Eastern European politics I I'm on I'm on the faculty of, of uh, Parsons of uh, new school I'm on the faculty I teach in Parsons Paris uh, one semester a year, purely for fun. I really enjoy teaching it. I really, I really like talking about art with uh, young people. Uh, I, they've, they've, I could, I could teach them political philosophy. I could teach them uh, uh, history. I try to teach courses where I get very. Uh, I, most of my students are teen, twenty, twenty-one year old uh, girls. Three hundred forty out of three hundred fifty students in the school are women. Who are uh, you know artists or uh, in fashion industry or uh, in fine arts or or they want to be in fashion marketing, and I uh, I have to get them to understand the wider world through different ways. They don't want to read Marx. They don't want to read political philosophy. They're they're not they're made to take liberal arts courses in order to have some breadth. They're very focused on art and, and fashion. So I, I have to bring them into politics and history through things that they understand, which are typically visual because they're, they're in, in, a, in a fine arts uh, uh, fashion management school, basically. And so I, I teach I teach art history. Uh, I, I do that. In I look forward to discussing surrealism and futurism with you. Art history is this also is a subject dear to my heart. Uh, Lev? Thank you so much yet again. Thank I you. always enjoy this. Uh, uh, we'll we'll do this again soon. I will see you soon. Tell I went time. to the post office. Mm -hmm. My 
postcard, but it was closed. The post office was closed. Oh, no, the they're probably going to send it back to the United States now. Anyway, we'll figure it out. We'll figure it out. No problem. All right. <laughs> bye, bye. Thank you so much. Take care. Have a good bye, night bye. over there in Paris. Au revoir. Au revoir. All right. So now we are going to get into the final super chats. And once again, for all the people who are here, don't forget to like, subscribe, um, click the bell, and patreon.com slash break the rules, becoming a patron. Very, very important for the growth of the show. We really do depend on the people who are watching here. And also, I noticed that there is an extreme discrepancy with the amount of people who are watching this video and the amount of people who have liked. It's about 50 50. 104 likes, 246 viewers. Uh uh, that's not going to cut it. So, all you guys watching right now, just smash those likes this instant. Okay, here we go. It's super chat time, everybody. So, we have. Uh, the first one here from AFD, 35 Czar. I wonder where Czar is from. That's an interesting uh, interesting sounding country. Czar, that is uh, South African Rand. Hmm, very interesting. So um, he asks, uh, what exactly is so Promethean about Israel or Jews as a whole? And I think we, uh, I think we covered this uh, before in probably the first stream that we did uh, with uh, Neil, the great Gnostic informant. But uh, yeah, Jason, let me know what you think. I'm sorry to say it's a retardedly ignorant question. Um, so if you look at the history of the contribution of people of Jewish descent to the development of science and technology and compare the number of uh, grade A geniuses, discoverers, and inventors within this ethnic population to the population base as a whole, they have contributed far more to the history of, of development of, of science and technology than any other ethnic group in the world per, per their population. Okay, so first of all, when you talk about Prometheus as an archetype of science and technology, there's the tremendous uh, I don't want to call it Jewish talent because, of course, the majority of these people rejected Judaism from Spinoza and onward to Einstein. The majority of uh, tremendously talented people in science and technology who were of Jewish descent repudiated Judaism as a religion and were among the most secular, uh, forward thinking individuals in intellectual history. So there's that. OK. And then when you look in the history of the arts and literature, uh, some of the most dynamic thinkers there uh, in, in terms of literary figures and artists, people involved in major artistic movements, uh, have also been Promethean in their resistance to tradition and their inculcation of dynamic change and creative development, right? And one, for example, that, you know, um, has been of great importance to me and has had a deep impact on the development of my thinking is Stanley Kubrick. Mm. who I think, you know, is an absolute fucking genius, a greatest filmmaker of all time, uh, a New York Jew uh, well, from Brooklyn. I have a quick question about Stanley Kubrick. From what I read, Stanley Kubrick described himself as being atheist, but one would think that with the kind of movies somebody like that makes, he would be aware of there being other things that are going on in in reality. But I don't know. What, what, curious what you think. Kubrick is an atheist only in the same sense as I'm an atheist, okay? Uh, Kubrick didn't believe in any supreme God who had a right to lord over humanity. 
Um, so, so in that sense, I mean, you could loosely describe him as an atheist in the way that people accuse Spinoza of being an atheist. Uh, but no, definitely Kubrick had a very profound and complex spirituality, which if you look at 2001 Space Odyssey or uh, even A Clockwork Orange, I would say is undoubtedly a Promethean spirituality. Mm, very interesting. So now we have uh, Uwu, $50. Uwu, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. This really does help grow the channel. And Uwu asks, um, it would do us well to remember that it is the others and then the alien, gray alien head emoji, that manipulate global events to fulfill their goals. The Abrahamic uh, revealed religions are used to divide, uh, confuse humanity. After this war, the stage will be set for them to return publicly emoji of an alien in the UFO. Okay, if you believe that, you should support the state of Israel, all right, for the same reason that, the, that a lot of Christians and a lot of Muslims hate Jews. You should support the state of Israel. Judaism was not used as a vehicle for you know, global conquest by any kind of celestial overlords. Christianity and Islam were. And the Jews, quote unquote, including later secular Jews, rejected Christianity and Islam. Okay, uh, The Yahweh cult, which by the way, was not historically the dominant form of religion in Israel, the Yahweh cult was a tribal religion of the Israelite people. It also... Uh, was only one among a number of fiercely competing cults, even within Israel and Judea. And you can see this all over the Bible, where Yahweh keeps coming down and, and talking about how stiff-necked stiff and rebellious his people are uh, for worshiping Baal and worshiping in particular Ishtar. Uh, there are stories about how King David's house was full of Ashtaroth, statues of Ishtar. So the actual religiosity of Israel was very eclectic, historically speaking. Mm. And Israel played no part in the global crusade of Christianity and the global jihad of Islam. Uh, in fact, the people of Jewish descent were the first victims of it. So I, I think that's a really a retarded attempt to um, you know, hold Jews responsible for whatever way in which the Abrahamic discourse has been used by uh, outside agencies, whether you want to call them aliens or time travelers or whatever, uh, in order to captivate the world. Hmm. Now, the same person, uh, AFD from South Africa, has been sending a couple of more of these uh, $1.84 super chats. Uh, and he is aggressive, but maybe it is worth uh, kind of confronting what he's asking over here. But it's completely up to you, Jason. Let's go, go for ahead. it then. Okay, so AFD for 35 czar. any response to people from the alt-right who are concerned that you are sounding like a Zionist flunky by supporting Israel? Well, first of all, I don't know what he means by flunky, but I'm a Zionist. I mean, not, not only am I a Zionist, I coined the fucking term Iranian Zionism, okay? In my uh, political activism on behalf of freedom and change in Iran in 2017, uh, I think initially in interviews um, and then later in my book, Iranian Leviathan, which was published in 2019, I not only coined the term Iranian Zionism, but I basically uh, developed this whole discourse of Iranian Zionism uh, in a conceptually sophisticated way, going back to how the 
Tanakh in its current form, the Jewish Bible, not just the Torah, but also the Nevi'im, the books of the prophets and so forth, how it was brought together in the form that it was under the leadership and guidance of Mithraic Magi during the reign of Cyrus and his Achaemenid successors. So there's a large chapter in Iranian Leviathan called comically titled Tekel Tekel Mene Shekel. And uh, I go into this whole thing at length and in depth. The relationship between the Achaemenid state and particularly the Mithraic elite on the one hand, and then the, the first Zionist project in history, uh, the reconstitution of the state of Israel and the rebuilding of the Temple of Solomon. So, so people should look at that. And so, no, I mean, I, it's, you know, uh, one of the few things, very few things that my wiki has right is that, yes, I'm a Zionist in the sense that I strongly believe uh, in a state for people of Jewish descent, namely the state of Israel. And I also think that the first Zionists of history were the Iranians, which is a point that's rarely been appreciated and understood. Mm, very interesting. So uh, he goes on to say over here uh, for Tsar 70, you hate Islam because it is the number one obstacle to your satanic Promethean vision of a perfected androgynous Caucasoid humanity. This is what Kabbalists believe. Can you see how this aligns you with Israel? Yes. Yes, <laughs> that's the uh, that's the answer, everybody. Yeah. Gray alien androgynous, all this bullshit that he packed into his question. If he had been a little bit more elegant in how he framed that, my simple answer could be yes. So so anyway, let's let's proceed. All right. I believe, yeah. Yes, I'm a Baphomet worshiper. I'm a Baphomet. Now, Baphomet is not androgynous. Baphomet's hermaphroditic and represents the alchemical fusion of the masculine and the feminist. Masculine and the feminine, but yeah, I've gone on record publicly saying that for the same reason that Muslims and people in you know the trad Catholic community on the right wing in, in Europe and America, for the same reasons that they brand Israel as satanic, I affirm the satanic. Mm. And so there's definitely an alignment there. So we also have a uh, five U.S. dollars from uh, Kave. And uh, before we conclude, there is a question I want to ask you. How much do you think it was Jared Kushner as opposed to Donald Trump that made the Abraham Accords happen um, uh, initially? I think Kushner played a significant role. And the interesting thing there is that later on, there was a big falling out between Kushner and Trump when Netanyahu backed Biden while the election was still contested. And so this really eroded the relationship between um, between Trump and, and his own son-in-law, uh, but also between Trump and Netanyahu. In addition to this thing you revealed recently about uh, Netanyahu pulling out of the operation to assassinate Soleimani, I think that's another, uh, another betrayal that Trump holds against Netanyahu that's going to complicate things if Trump becomes president again, namely Netanyahu's um, fairly early congratulation of Biden during the contested 2020 election. Very interesting. So, uh, yeah, that is it, everybody. Thank you guys so much for watching. Jason, final plugs, the artificial intelligence uh, movie right now that you are working on, the um, uh, Psychotron AI film project. I just posted a link in the chat one more time here for everybody to go there. What can you expect from uh, Psychotron? Well, you know, with, with a specific relevance to the subject of our discussion today, uh, you know, I've actually written about four books that have to do with Iran in one way or another, in particular, you know, a tome called Iranian Leviathan that's an extensive study of Iran. 
But what people might not realize is that there's an awful lot about Iran in this novel. And in fact, I provide an entire alternate history of what might have happened in Iran had President Nixon not left office and had the Soviet Union invaded Iran the way that they planned to originally go from Afghanistan into Iran. So there's a whole alternative history of late Pahlavi Iran in this book, which reveals a lot about the, uh, the political structure of that regime and Iranian society and Iran's role in geopolitics. Uh, so even people who have a deep interest in Iran, I think, would find Psychotron of interest. And if it were to successfully be made into a film using this emerging AI technology, I think that it would be uh, one of the most stunning commentaries on the hidden history of modern Iran that's ever been made in film. Mm. And one last one over here from Uwu, 10 US dollars. Christianity was born out of Judaism, the new iteration of their weapon against humanity. Islam was added to further muddle the subject the same way Jesus has multi-faced conflicting messages. That's a load of crap. The Roman elites are responsible for Christianity and the, the corruption of the Sassanid empire in Iran and its misguided policies are responsible for the rise of Arab Islam. All right, and the final one here from Menmo History, 999 US dollars. Do you see so-called First Temple Judaism with its divine mother goddess premises, in parenthesis, he writes, M. Barker, as relevant to your Promethean divine unity of masculine and feminine? Look, as I was suggesting earlier, the religiosity and mysticism of ancient Israel was a very eclectic phenomenon from out of which we also saw the rise of Gnosticism. Mm -hmm. There were pre-Christian Gnostic sects like the uh, Sethians and Ophites. Um, and and uh, you know the movement of uh, Simon Magus, Shimon, Simon, Shimon Magus, the, the Magus, Shimon, uh, who was a disciple of John the Baptist. These people, they had a very Iranian form of spirituality that had been fused with Judaism and certain Hellenistic ideas before the rise of historical Christianity. So there are all kinds of uh, eclectic forms of spirituality in ancient Israel that had Promethean tendencies and definitely the conception of the divine feminine there from out of which the idea of Sophia in Gnosticism emerged is absolutely relevant to that. Well, uh, there we go, everybody. So, uh, Follow Patreon, patreon.com slash break the rules. Discord, I just posted the Discord link because I know how a lot of people here are into Discord. This was a fantastic conversation. I couldn't have expected uh, it to go any better than it did uh, with you and Vlad. And the fact that we're able to bring people together like that, especially at a time right now, I think that there was something very special just about that, that this is the right time. We have the internet, we have these streaming technologies. Uh, the pieces seem to be, you know, going into place here. And it's a very, I mean, it's a scary time, obviously. I hope that everything gets resolved in the very best way here. But then again, there are no promises in the, in this life. We can only do with the pieces that we're given. So, uh, Jason, I really appreciate you coming in. You're going to be back here uh, in a um, in a couple next of weeks month. next month. Yes, and we're going to be talking we're going to be talking about Plato with uh, Neil Gnostic informant and uh, Uber Boyo as well. So that's going to be a lot of fun. I can't wait. And guys. Please subscribe once again, breaktherules.tv. If you guys are not watching on YouTube, that's where you go to go to YouTube. Like, 
comment, subscribe, share this with all the people. And lastly, LevsLens.com. I'm very surprised at how accurate I was about the whole Netanyahu uh, uh, Putin thing. So if you guys want to read a little bit more about that, that is where you go. Lev LevsLens.com. Read the article. Subscribe to my Substack. And if you like my writing, there's a lot of different articles there. You can become a paid subscriber as well. And I would definitely appreciate that. So once again, a big thanks to Jason Research. Johnny, a bit, uh, Dr. Jason Reeser Johnny, a big thanks to Vladislav Davidson of the Atlantic Council, and a big thanks to all of you guys for watching. Take care. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you again, Lev, for connecting Vlad and I. I look forward to seeing.